the virus. The Ron and Fez Show starts... Now. Get down to it, boppers. Oh, buddies. It's the Ron and Fez show. Funk Fridays are starting. Zeech, you got to be careful. Fez bit through his bottom lip there. If there's one thing he hates, it's dead air. The the delet the, the system. <laughs> Pause for a second. The I had to frogs. double click it. No, seriously. It, 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 and I was I saw him kind of freak out. Here's what you got to understand: the man does not put up with dead air. It's it's an old school thing with him. You got to fill the dead air at all times. All right, Ron and Fez show on a Friday. Muscle pack show today. Uh, all kinds of stuff coming up. And I'll just announce it like I was a letterman. I'll just be one of those guys at the beginning of our show. I'll stick around, folks. It's going to be a big show. <laughs> Coming up, a live performance here in this little studio. We will not uh, do this in the fishbowl, but uh, I think one of the great uh, blues guitarists out there is going to come in here and hopefully shred. 
He's got uh, his axe with him. Uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Kenny Wayne Shepherd is going to sit in here uh, and uh, shred for us. He's got a brand new uh, album out uh, called uh, How I Go. KennyWayneShepherd.net for tour dates and information. Now, if you are uh, familiar uh, with him, you know that this is going to be great. And if you're not familiar with him, uh, it's going to be a real, real treat for you um, because he's great. Uh, he's got his singer with him? Yeah, his Noah Hunt, who's in his band. Oh, Noah Hunt's great. Yeah, uh, this, this is going to be amazing. He's going to fucking tear this shit up. Well, let's not put the pressure on him, Chris. Let's just uh, put it out there. If he doesn't. Now, uh, a while ago, uh, Hicks kept bugging me to go see this documentary called Black Power Mixtape. I think I mentioned it the day after I saw it. It's one of the craziest documentaries uh, because it is about the Black Power movement from 1967 to 1965. But all the stuff was done by a Swedish news team. So the Swedes come over uh, and are talking to all the big leaders uh, from the Black Power movement at the time. Uh, Angela Davis, Huey P. Newton, Stokey Carmichael, Bobby Seals, Elridge uh, Cleaver. Everybody's in it. Um, and yet it's, it's taken to us through this uh, Swedish prism as these people try to figure out uh, what's going on with the Black Power struggle and the Black Panther Party. Yoran uh, Olsen is the person, and he found a bunch of these tapes in the basement of this TV studio, uh, edited together, uh, and then some folks kind of did a little bit of voiceover and updating. One of the people who did that, Danny Glover, uh, is also coming in here today to talk about it. So Black Power mixtape... Uh, coming up a little later on in the show uh, and then uh, we're going to end the show uh, with a kind of a 9-11 thing with bringing back everybody that was with Fez and I on the air that night our whole team at that time that went on the air at 9-11 uh, at WNEW uh, which was Fez and myself a couple of our producers could not make it in Rory Hampton's and Al Dukes, and they forever had their balls busted by us <laughs> for no apparent reason, just because we're like, are oh, you going to be in tomorrow? Is this another fucking 9-11? Or anytime like, any kind of threat went out, I guess you're not making it in tomorrow, Al. And he's like, there's nothing I could do. Uh, but we are bringing in the Hawk, uh, who was our producer at the time. The Hawk came in from Astoria, Queens, and walked over the 57th Street Bridge. This is the bridge that, if you're not from New York City, you see in, the, in just about every movie of people coming into New York. Yeah. Uh, the, the TV show Taxi starts there. Gigantic bridge with hundreds of thousands of people heading out of the city, and the hawk, like in some kind of a strange movie, walking through them to get to the city. Um, Earl's going to be in here with us. He wasn't even our producer at the time. He was like promotions boy, I think was his title. Uh, but he came in, and Billy Staples came in from Long Island by hiding in the bathroom on the train um, because you weren't allowed to come into the city. They were just sending empty trains in the city, full trains out. 
Billy hid in the bathroom and then ran out and came in. Um, Hawk and Billy also did not leave the city after that happened. They slept at the uh, station and got up in the morning and started producing the morning show stuff. Uh, this was a, a crazy thing that I will personally blame Jeremy Coleman on because I thought we were going to go straight news. Um, it would have been the smart thing to do to go straight news. But uh, Jeremy felt like, no, you know, this is our radio station. These are our listeners. We're going to go on the air. None of us uh, at the time were prepared to do that kind of radio. Um, it was kind of a just a... It's one of those things that you look back on it, uh, and I, I never considered 9-11 uh, doing radio just that one night. It just felt like it went on for weeks and maybe even months of people calling the station venting, talking, whatever. It definitely changed uh, the way uh, I thought about talk radio after that. And also did this thing where it was the first time that I said, I want to now meet the audience. You know what I mean? Before that, Fez and I did a show in Florida. We used to go out, do gigs, leave, go out and do gigs, leave. He never kind of became friends. The people at ronfez.net and us set up all these bar crawls around the city because bars were going out of business very very quickly because no one was going downtown so we take these bar crawls have 100 150 people and they would walk around and buy drinks at every single bar that was hurting a way to help out that business and also have drinks so it kind of worked on both levels but the folks from ronfez.net uh they were like such a, a positive force towards us at that time it was amazing and that's how we ended up becoming very very good friends with those people um that was about the time that we became friends with irish alki who we lost this year and uh, i have just a ton of memories from uh, so many of those folks so um not to be overly self-serving but that's how we're going to spend about the last hour of the show because none of us the guys that run there have ever talked about this with each other uh we thought it would be like uh Interesting um, idea just to check out. Um, all right, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Coming up very, very shortly, Live Blues with uh, Kenny Wayne Sh- uh, Shepherd and Noah Hunt. Uh, Fez Watley on deck today. Did you get any sleep? Not much. Not mm. much at all. Uh, we went out last night to the Hard Rock Cafe where through the cover bands of uh, music uh, and some weird DJ stuff. Um, by, by the time I left there, Fez, I was out on my feet. I was glad to get home <laughs> and slept like a little old lady. Um, here's uh, over here to uh, Tim in PA. Tim, you're on the Run Fez show. Yeah, I just uh, want to call in with a number one. Uh, Pepper Hicks is wanting to know in the football season with his betting advice. Hope he keeps the streak up. I'm putting all my chips in with you, buddy. What was your big bet there? Oh, that was uh, good. He had the Packers last night. He took the pack. uh, Mark Zito said, lock it in. It's Saints year. (laughs) And then he started, yo, who dat? Who dat? Who dat? Who dat? And then he said, check out this Reese's cap I got from Candyman. It's the Candyman. Thank you, Candyman. It says a fucking backpack full of candy. It's it's really heavy. (laughs) That takes me back to school. Too bad we're not four. Well, that will be breakfast slash lunch slash after show snacks. It's twenty pounds. <laughs> yes, that twenty pounds will be gone by Monday. <laughs> when Hicks, you are what I would call a grazer. Yeah, 
You're just like, hey, I like to keep something going. Yeah, come on, keep keep it coming. Like last night. Oh, it's the fucking <laughs> the people with hors d'oeuvres. Yeah, bring it here. Come on, guy looks like Bruce Springsteen, I guess. I don't know. Uh, Mike, Mike Greenback, you're on my face. Hey, I got a Packers number one. What do you got, buddy? Uh, rookie wide receiver Randall Cobb returns a kickoff 108 yards. Almost a record by uh, nearly one to help the Packers beat the Saints. What a way to to be a rookie. You know what I mean? Like, now everybody knows your name. Everybody knows who you are. Blow the fuck up. And now for the rest of the season, they're going to expect another long run back. Everybody will be excited. Like, this is great. Kickoff. <laughs> um, let's go over here to uh, Corey. Corey, you're on my face. Hello, Robbie. How you doing? Yeah. Um. Zero, completely wrong with that Saints pick last night. That game was completely dominated by the Packers. They lost by eight points and had a chance to tie it at the end. That's not yeah. a domination. Yo, know, you watch the entire game. The Saints were not even close to being in it. They're still going to make the Super Bowl. I got to say the same thing. Make- Whether they're going to make the Super Bowl or not was not last night's bet. No. You've got to win week by week. You can't say, but we're still a better team. Yeah. No, if you bullshit. pushed in Zito money last night... It was like throwing it out a car window. But that last drive, until they didn't score, it was pretty awesome. I was already sleeping by then. I have no idea. I'm just going to say it was a romp. <laughs> Good. Uh, here's the Candyman, your best friend, wants to say hi to you. Hey, Candyman. Hey, guys. How you doing? Hi, Candyman. Uh, I, I, guess I, uh, I, got, I guess I early started a little, little conflict with Jenny Hutt. Why? What's that? She did email me last night, and I was a little mad. I told her not to steal from you guys. Oh, so she's starting to walk around trying to get in stuff. Yeah. Well, I told her, I said I offered her her own package, and she declined. So, But now she wants one, so I'm going to send her one, too. Don't. Don't, Candyman. She frequently okay. asked me for Candyman's name, and I just told her it was Candyman on Twitter, and she ended up tweeting at some Spanish guy. Good. <laughs> Good. Let her have phone sex, if that's what she's after. El hombre del candy. You know, we try, you know, we try to be friends with her. She's our... I'm going to just say it, our neediest friend. But the second she came in here, her and Fez Watley had words. Right at it. Glares. And Fez is an easygoing guy. He gets along great with everybody. So I don't know how the hell that went wrong. And Fez, you're also, this nuttiness of you carrying your Fez hat around in a fucking plastic bag and under your arm. Death grip. (laughs) And now you put it on and it's more and more wrinkled every day. It looks so great the way it fit you when you first had it. And now it just looks like you're wearing your old underwear on your head. It's like when a child carries around a bug and they accidentally kill it in their fist. Uh, Bill, you're on the Red Fest show. Hey, Ronnie, how was the vibe last night up here at the Hard Rock? Uh, The vibe was uh, very white. uh, Extremely white. Yeah, quite nerdy. But at one point, I was on, standing on the rail there watching the Coyotes dance with Earl, and some uh, overly orange-tanned Jersey woman was trying to call Earl down. Yeah. Not having it. Wow. And she's like, who? Him? Who? What? And she's like, come on, baby. And she's just air-fucking and pointing at yeah, him, right? Yeah, yeah. And she's, he's like... What? What? What does she want? I said, she wants you to go down there and break up a chippero for her. Because Earl is too smart to be caught alone with a white woman. His Good dad call. taught him that, Big Earl, many, many years ago. Do not fall for the white devil. It'll ruin him. Well, it all blows up and turns ugly in retrospect. Earl is uh, way too bright for that. Way too bright ever to get close to uh, any Punani. Hey, Tony, you're on the Run of Fez show. Ronnie B. Yeah. 
Hey, I'm anxious to hear your summary on President Obama's speech last night, and uh, what are your thoughts and concerns about a possible terrorist attack there in the city? Um, well, first of all, I didn't see his speech. Uh, and second of all, you know, this terrorist attack stuff, I know it's frightening people. We had 47 shootings in New York last weekend. The cops were getting shot. Yeah. I mean, if you want to fear anything right now, it's ourselves. Then you can get around the fearing people <laughs> on the other side of the world. Uh, you know, we just had the hurricane and flooding and all that. There's plenty of stuff in the news uh, to keep your eye out on, and this is just uh, another one. Um, you can't uh, get caught up into it. All right, Jennifer Hutch just wrote, you are so mean today. I don't think I was mean about that. I didn't try to steal your candy. Yeah, really. The fuck? We're just stating the facts. And I told Candyman not to send you any candy. I'm not trying to go like this. Hey, which sh what is Shower Bench's uh, Twitter? I like to write to Shower Bench. I want to talk to him. Also, I have to thank Barry Delmar on Twitter <laughs> and Go Pack Joe on Twitter. Send me a couple cards of cigarettes. Oh. Really, uh, I, I really need. I'm a man in need, and I want to thank those guys so much. So, candy and cigarettes. <laughs> yeah, this is going to be the best prison stay you've ever had. When Jennifer came in and told us Barry somebody sent her something, and it turned out to be Barry Delmar, was the best thing ever. Of course. One of Jersey Joe's going to say anything over next, <laughs> or Max Anderson Williams. <laughs> Reggie Forrest. I don't want to be in this radio war with uh, basically a passive enemy. We have to we have to start and take care of Jennifer. She gets her feelings hurt. The thing with her and Fez yesterday turned ugly fast. Really quickly. Yes. No time. Yeah. No fun. All. No like. Hey, let's have some fun and yeah. just you know jump back and forth. Fez was just glaring. She does that every time. She but she does it to all of us, and yeah. we're not angry with her. Come on. She's stealing candy. She's teasing. She's asking for cell phones. That's just her. Every day, knocking on the door of the office as she walks down to her show. She's needy. I know. Uh, ever since Pete Dominic has given her the bums rush, uh, that's it. What is it, Jennifer? What can we do for Pete, you? By the way, Petey and I are good. He doesn't give me any bums rush. I have all mm. his numbers. I just know the stuff that he says to us. Yeah. That's funny. Wait, you guys, I am needy. It's so sad. I told you yesterday, run off the air, that I keep crying. I keep just crying. I'm a mess. Yes. Yes, you and yet, and yet, you guys want to shut down the candy opportunity? You have your own listeners. Get your own candy. Yeah. But the candy man was so nice. He emailed me. It's us. He's nice to us. <laughs> he can't be nice to anybody else. Jeez. You know what? You are you're like one of those guys that tries to steal your friend's girlfriends. <laughs> you're no, like, oh, never. look at her. She's pretty. Yeah. I would first of all, I I would never. That's it's bros before hose. Oh, uh, thanks. Like a friend that wants to borrow a new nice toy. No. Yes, but I would share all my toys. Oh, that sounds wrong. Actually, uh, oh, uh, uh, oh, 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 God, because you guys could be mean and everything, and I love you. I yes, love we know that. That's that why we keep being now. mean. But, I know. But I, know. I will talk. Let me just say something about her uh, big but misguided heart. So she has this weird thing for her phone where you have an old-fashioned phone receiver. I saw Lenny Kravitz with that in the newspaper. Right. So I said to her, I go, yesterday, hey, that's pretty cool. Here, take it. I want you to have it. And what? tries to give it to me. <laughs> I'm, that's, I'm like, stop it. No. 
But I would. I'd give you anything, really. Why not? Oh, just relax. Just. Yeah, it's okay. I know that this doesn't get said anymore, but just be cool. Just be cool. I don't have an ounce of cool in my whole body, Ron. I just don't. That's wish. Uh, that's what I wish I could give you. That's the yeah, gift. So, all right. So I'm going to work on that. Um, I'm going to work on finding cool. Yeah. Come in here like Fonzie. All right. Like your little oh, Fonzie. By the, way, the next time I come in, I am Fonzie. Okay, Fonz. All right, I'm on it. All right, love you guys. Have a hey, day. Bye. hey, hey, that's right. All right, correct the mundo. Eat your veggies, Mrs. C. Uh, Fez, every day I get up and I read Fishbowl DC. It's just one of those sites I love to go to. Okay. Uh, and there's a little thing there called Journal Hate Mail. And I guess this was a tweet uh, that went out. About Rachel Maddow. Um, somebody was watching uh, Rachel Maddow on the network's post-coverage uh, debate, uh, the post-debate uh, coverage. And this person tweeted, How's this cunt on MSNBC saying Ob- Obama created jobs? I'm stunned at this shit-ass fuck-dick news channel. <laughs> this is why I tell you. Don't drink and tweet because it gets out there and it's out of context. And I don't know who did this, but, you know, apparently if you want to put this, you know, on your own compound show, uh, I think everybody there uh, would be able to get it. Yeah, they're fine with it. But, you know, just out there. Just out there tweeting because the people will take your tweets and then put them out there. And do you really want to be known as the person who says about a young lady, how is this cunt on MSNBC saying Obama created jobs? I'm stunned at this shit-ass fuck-dick news channel. <laughs> I will say this, it's quotable. Oh, easily. Now I know dick why you go to Fishbowl DC every morning. Well, I, I, I do, Fezzy, because I like to cover the waterfront. I like to know what's going on out there in the world. Um, and since Obama's name came up twice... That becomes political. We can't do this. Let me just point this out about the presidential uh, debate. Uh, Over 200,000 votes were cast in this. Who won the debate? Um, Rick Perry, 12.4%. Mitt Romney, 14%. And then Ron Paul, 57.1% of the people who sat down and watched the debate and said, let me go to the polls and say who I think won. Now, uh, we only brought this up because The Daily Show says this man is ignored. He's got a whole different way of looking at the world. It's definitely he doesn't fit into this same... We've got a, 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 It's like two parties are driving along. And then they had a fender bender and they're fucking... Fenders are stuck together, so they just keep ramming back and forth, and we're not moving anywhere. Yeah. Here comes Ron Paul, I think, on a, like a little motor scooter, and he moves around him, and he's saying, look, here's another way to travel. It's on a Vespa, people. And yet, no one will give us the Vespa update. No. And that's why I said till October 15th, uh, the only person that we will uh, be talking about is Ron Paul. That's it. But I will say this. The Republican Party doesn't want him. Oh, they hate him. He's, according to this poll, destroyed everybody in the debates on top of the world, and yet his own party doesn't push him. He's a fucking ghost to them. So, unless he pulls off into a third party, 
how is this going to be heard? Not even the Tea Party, which he practically invented, <laughs> which they seem to be right back in the regular Republican politics right now. Yeah, they're just back in all the Republicans. It's, they're no longer a third party, it seems like. Whatever. Well, RonPaul2012.com. There we go. It's that simple. That's the only guy we're going to talk about because he seems to be the only guy on the outside right now. On the outside rail, as Hicks likes to put it. That's right. Going around that fucking straightaway. Uh, Chris in uh, Columbus. Hey, uh, Ronnie. Uh, New Zealand beats Tonga 41-10 to 10 in the opener of the Rugby World Cup overnight. They were up 29-3 to 3 at half, never really challenged. And, and the All Blacks in their next match against Japan will use largely substitutes and save the big boys for the big match with France here in about a week or so. One thing also to note, we saw last night, uh, New Zealand will do a Maori war dance before the game called a haka. Well, anytime they play uh, one of the islander countries like Tonga, Western Samoa, or Fiji, you'll have dueling haka. So if you get a chance, uh, look on YouTube for Maori versus Tongan haka, H-A-K-A, uh, Rugby World Cup. They play the anthems, and then you get to see the uh, war dances. A very, it's just a source of intimidation, and it's just a, an ancient uh, tribal dance they would do before they go into battle. I do the same exact thing before I come to work in the morning. I get up and do a war dance. Hey, you got to whatever gets you through the day, my man. All right, take care. All right, so there's our big rugby update, international. It's all going down. Uh, you've got the war dance up there, Hicks. Yeah. It's exciting stuff. Well, that is intimidating. Um, Scary. Synchronized. When um, when I was a kid, uh, we played for the Chichester Crusaders. We were all like 13, 14 years old. We played from a team called Bennett Raider. Uh, from the, uh, it was a scrimmage that we had against them. Uh, they were from Chester. Um, I'm not saying I didn't go and check anyone's ID, but I can swear some of them were driving cars. So we're like 13. I swear these guys were driving up to play us. And as soon as they got out of the cars, they all started going, Bennett Raider! Bennett Raider! And we're like, oh, fuck. I don't like that. That's this. And when we'd be in the huddle, they'd be just smacking their pads going like this. Come on out. Come on out. Jesus Christ. Come on out. Come on out. And I said in the huddle, I suggest we stay in. <laughs> this is fucking ridiculous. No chance here. What the fuck? Well, why don't we do this? Uh, fall on the ball three times, punt. Let him run it back. Let's get out of this. All we got to do is hang on until it's dark. It's got to be an easier way. Um, let's go over um, here to Dave. Dave, you're on running first. Hey, Ronnie. What's going on? Yeah. What makes me sick is the, the how everyone in the entire country let the media show Ron Paul as a fool and an idiot. And no one will even try and take a side. Well, this is the only place right now that will only give Ron Paul uh, stuff because the other two parties seem to be in this deadlock, this, this seriously, like a drowning man's death grip on each other, taking us all to the bottom with him. It's been going great so far. I mean, uh, but, you know, hey, Ron Paul, you could change it. Who knows? 
Uh, let's break uh, very quickly. When we get back, we're going to be set up to go electric. Uh, it is a real, real uh, cool thing for you folks uh, because this guy can play. Uh, one of the best blues players out there today, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. He's got a brand new album called How I Go. Kenny Wayne Shepherd dot net for tour dates and more information. And the reason why uh, I'm excited about having him come in here and plug in is to see a real blues man. You got to see him live. You got to hear him live because you never know what you're going to get. Well, I don't know. And uh, he's going to be in uh, with his lead singer Noah Hunt. Uh, who it turns out is a, a longtime Ron and Fez listener. Nice. Um, so I guess he's behind getting uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd in here, which is incredibly cool. So uh, be ready to get the blues on a Friday. Uh, coming up a little later on in the show, Danny Glover's stopping in. And then we bring back the NEW crew that were together in the night of 9 11. And we'll talk about our experiences on 9 11. And the weeks and months that followed doing radio in New York City. Uh, but coming up next, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. It's the Ron and Fez Show. Ron Bennington. Fez Watley. Ron and Fez. On the virus. Weird medicine. Dr. Steve. Hey, it's your old pal, Dr. Steve. Join me and my wacky band of medical misfits every Saturday night at 10 p.m. Eastern for Weird Medicine, the first and still only uncensored medical show in the history of radio. Got a question? Call 347-WHO-HEAD and leave a voicemail or visit weirdmedicine.com. Tomorrow at 10 p.m. Eastern on The Virus. Sirius 105 XM shit. What is it? I don't know the numbers. XM 105, Sirius 206. Come to pop. I am Tom Papa with my new pal, the one and only Mel Brooks. Ladies and germs. Ladies and germs. Come see your papa. Did you write 2,000-year-old man? It wrote itself. I mean, he said to me, sir, did you know Jesus? I said, yeah. Sandals, right? Walked around with 12 other guys, came in the store, never bought anything. <laughs> Tom Papa sits down for an intimate talk with comedy legend Mel Brooks. Blazing saddles, young Frank Sang. The producers. I saw the marriage rap. You did? I like it. Come to Papa. Today, 6 p.m. East, 3 West. On Raw Dog Comedy, Sirius XM 99. Okay, recording for Conway Trucklow. This is Drivers Take One. Okay, Herb, we're going to need to check your sound levels. Say something into the mic, please. Hello, check one, check two. That was good. Wait, hold on. I need to fix something back here. Stand by. Okay. So, Herb, how have things been lately? Well, we're coming out of a tough year and a half for us and the whole country. But, you know, Conway Truckload never cut driver pay. I wouldn't even consider it. I want drivers to feel like they can have a career with us. Understand that we're always looking out for them as far as pay, benefits, and miles. And now that things are turning around, we actually need more drivers. And that's what we're doing here today. So, you ready to cut this commercial yet? You know, Herb, I think we just did. Call Conway today at 866-WORK-THE-NUMBER-4-US. 866-WORK-FOR-US. Or visit www.con-way.com slash xm. That's www.con-way.com slash xm. Equal employment opportunity through affirmative action. Women and minorities are encouraged to apply. This is the opportunity you've been waiting for. Patent Sales and Marketing recently purchased 51 bank-owned waterfront condos in southwest Florida at a huge discount and are passing those savings on directly to you. Get a two-bed, two-bath waterfront condo with all the high-end finishes you desire for only $179,900. The condo is loaded with amenities including a private movie theater, fully equipped fitness center, sports courts, and more. 
The Prime location offers the best of Florida's beaches, boating, fine dining, shopping, and entertainment. These same condos were selling for as much as $650,000, but you can own your own 1,675-square-foot condo with spectacular water views for just $179.9. Or check out one of the unique townhome penthouses. As always, our bank-owned waterfront condos will sell quickly. So call me today at 877-333-0203. Again, that's 877-333-0203. Or visit flcondodeal.com. Equal housing opportunity. A kangaroo can outbox any man, except for Mike Tyson. But a grasshopper can make your small business sound big. The web-based Grasshopper Virtual Phone System for Entrepreneurs features local and toll-free numbers, custom greetings, unlimited extensions, voicemails to email, and much, much more, all for just pennies a day. Sign up at grasshopper.com. Grasshopper, the entrepreneur's phone system. The virus. Ron and Fez. The Ron and Fez Show. Fans, football is back. Nobody covers the NFL like Sirius XM NFL Radio. Every game. Unbelievable. Every team. Touchdown, Giants. Everywhere. He's going to go the distance. From week one to the Super Bowl. Follow your team. Go to SiriusXM.com slash NFL schedule and hear the games on your smartphone, iPad, or computer. NFL fans, your team is on Sirius XM NFL Radio. Channel 88. Hi, this is Herb Schmidt, president of Conway Truckload. I like to say you can tell how strong a company is by how it treats its employees, not just in good times, but in tougher times. Now, it's no secret that this has been a tough economy, but I'm proud to say that in spite of that, we're offering great opportunities for drivers and teams right now. Good jobs, period, with top pay. In fact, we're one of the few employers in our industry that didn't cut driver pay during the economic downturn. Industry-leading benefits packages, including medical, retirement, and achievable safety bonuses. Consistent freight and lots of home time. And what I'm even more proud of is the culture we have at Conway Truckload, where every driver feels like they're part of a family. And through our driver forums, drivers have a say in the direction of the company. If you're an experienced, qualified driver or team, and this sounds like a job you'd want, call 866-WORK, the number for us. 866-WORK-FOR-US today. Or visit www.con-way.com slash XM. Equal employment opportunity through affirmative action. Women and minorities are encouraged to apply. This is the opportunity you've been waiting for. Patent Sales and Marketing recently purchased 51 bank-owned waterfront condos in southwest Florida at a huge discount and are passing those savings on directly to you. Get a two-bed, two-bath waterfront condo with all the high-end finishes you desire for only $179,900. The condo is loaded with amenities including a private movie theater, fully equipped fitness center, sports courts, and more. The Prime location offers the best of Florida's beaches, boating, fine dining, shopping, and entertainment. These same condos were selling for as much as $650,000, but you can own your own 1,675-square-foot condo with spectacular water views for just $179.9. Or check out one of the unique townhome penthouses. As always, our bank-owned waterfront condos will sell quickly. So call me today at 877-333-0203. Again, that's 877-333-0203. Or visit flcondodeal.com. Equal housing opportunity. How would you like to make an extra few hundred dollars each day without ever leaving your home? Worldwide sports betting does over $150 billion in business each year, and you can get in on the action. 
with something called the Vegas Nightmare Sports Betting System. Developed by Wall Street millionaire Sheldon Graham, it works even if you have zero experience betting on sports. Remember, even if you only generate a few extra hundred dollars a day, that's thousands of dollars each month, and it only takes minutes. Begin profiting from this amazing system today. Simply go to TheVegasNightmare.com. That's TheVegasNightmare.com. The Ron and Fez Show. On the virus.
that goes down easy. <laughs> That's uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. That's never looking back off the new How I Go uh, track. How you guys doing? Great, Great, man. It's good to see you here. Of course, Noah Hunt in studio with us as well. This album got recorded when? Uh, we did it kind of slowly over the past year and a half, but it just got released about three weeks ago, four weeks ago. Now, do you like to sit down in the studio like that uh, and like do a whole album, or would you rather do what you did this time and just piece by piece? Yeah, I, I, well, this was a new approach for us. We used to just bang records out. We would go, mm-hmm. we'd be on the road for like a year. We'd come home. I'd write for like you know two months. We'd record for two or three months, and then hit the road again, put a record out. This time we. You know, I wrote in my spare time. I mean, a lot's happened over the past several years. We had lots of shows to do. I had like three kids in the past four years, you know. But in between all of that, trying to find time to write and then record, you know, we kind of had to break it up a bit. But it was cool because we actually got to live with the material for long periods of time. We'd go record for like two weeks and then two months would go by before we'd go back in the studio. So I really got to listen to what we did and, you know, see, you know, get the game plan together going back in as to what we wanted to do to actually make it better. Would you? Do you do any of those songs uh, on the road, or do you keep them in your back pocket? Well, we normally we don't normally do that. We did some towards right as the album was just about finished, and we mm-hmm. had some of the songs that we had finished recording them, and we had the end result right there. Then we started testing some of them out at the live concerts just to give the fans a little teaser and a, and a taste of what they were in store for. And we didn't want to let too much out, you know, too soon since everything. Sure. Once you once you play a note, it's on the air these days. You know. Yeah, I mean? yeah that is a major problem, isn't it? Yeah. Where you know, everybody's uh, set list is out immediately. Mm-hmm. And that whole thing of just being surprised at a show, I don't know why we don't want that anymore or, or you know, seeing bits of bad YouTube all over the place. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, first impressions still, in my opinion, mean a lot. And I wanted, yeah, to be sure that people, when people heard the new material, that they were going to hear it as good as possible. Yeah. But, you know, with writing, do you know when the songs are going to come to you or... Is it more about the discipline and sitting down with it? Yeah, a lot of it is just sitting down with it. But, you know, what I've done is over the past several years, you know, now that we have like iPhones and stuff like that, everybody has a digital recorder with them all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's been great because there's been uh, probably hundreds of songs that never came to fruition over the years because I had an idea and I didn't have a way to record it immediately and then I forgot it. Yeah. So I accumulated, I had like over like 300 different guitar riffs and grooves that I had recorded into my phone or my computer over the past several years. And then when I sat down and said, all right, I want to start writing this record and putting this stuff together, then I just started like, you know, going through all of that stuff and picking the ones that I felt would be appropriate for the next record. Now, you just start improvising that, or are you thinking about it? You just let your, you, yeah. you kind of find it? Yeah, if I'm, if I pick it, if I just, like, if I was sitting here for yeah. the next five or ten minutes just jamming around, I try not to, I try to just kind of let it go and, and see what happens. And normally, I'll come up with something you know, within five or ten minutes. If that happens, I want you to jump on it, and then I want a writing credit with you guys. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I'll throw in a half a lyric, and that'll be it. You owe me forever. Uh, now, are you the same way, or you know, is it is a whole different feel for you? The way I've been writing uh, lately has been more. I've been kind of just writing words, and uh, you know, because Kenny's such a wealth of guitar riffs Mm -hmm. and music i've just been kind of like uh just kind of writing these kind of free form stream of consciousness things and hopefully i'll be able to put uh you know some of those to some of his riffs but uh that that's uh that's uh, it it has to kind of come to me Uh 
uh, more so. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to sit down and force it. Yeah, the the whole thing of songwriting is so mysterious, isn't it? I mean, it's just really it is not. When you look at it, it's sometimes people work so hard on something, and then. At another point, a great song just comes rolling in within yeah, minutes. The, the best songs seem to come that way, but the, it's so rare. Yeah. yeah. What's cool is, you know, like, every record that we've done, is, I, I've come in with at least 30 songs worth of material mm -hmm. when we go into the studio. Then we start cutting a whole bunch of stuff, and then the best stuff tends to surface, and the album begins to take a direction and take shape. Um, but I remember a lot of times, like, being, you know, I like to co-write because... Mm -hmm. You know, I always find that when I'm writing with somebody else, um, it generally inspires something in me that probably wouldn't have happened if I would have tried to do the whole song by myself. And a lot of times it'll take different directions, you know, that, and it's, it, it, it keeps it interesting for me. So a lot of times we write some of the best material, like when we're working on a song and we're like beating our head up against a wall on one particular song and we're like, you know what, let's step away from that and try something else. And then we try something else. We write this really cool song and then later we'll come back to that one that we were doing before and finish it up too so writing alone for you um you know i wonder if it's like being in a conversation like if you're in a good conversation you're not thinking uh about so much where you're going to stay but if someone said all right i need you to sit down and write a speech about one of your friends or something it would be the most difficult thing in in the world there's definitely more yeah. pressure yeah. When it's, when yeah it's just you i mean i remember like i wrote some songs back in the day early on in my career i wrote the entire song but i was like too uh self-conscious to put it out there so i took it to somebody else and just had them change one thing so that their name could be on it too so that it's like i didn't feel like i had all the pressure on me <laughs> so you didn't want to be the person who handed it in like, well if it sucked i yeah. didn't want anybody you know then it wasn't all my fault you know <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah that was the other guy man <laughs> yeah. well then the the other thing too is when you come into it like you did uh being a kid and loving music you are presented with history's amount of great songs mm -hmm. you know what i mean so yeah. you get like hey here's all the greatest songs ever written now let's see you write something of your own oh yeah you man. know i know well you know it's like i mean first of all a lot of what we do is blues based and we mm. play like you know some traditional blues in the show and stuff and it's challenging man to write an authentic blues song nowadays you know mm -hmm. it's challenging to write a new blues song that, that doesn't sound contrived you know and then um you know but the goal is to uh, for any artist i feel like is to try and write material that you know essentially sounds timeless and people can right. enjoy it forever and you know i think w i'm very proud because i think we accomplished that on a lot of our material one song in particular which was blue on black which was you know the big hit off of our second album trouble is back in the 90s and that song you know was number one for like 17 consecutive weeks it, eventually it was like 27 weeks at number one of the rock chart and and it's one of the, it's like a recurring classic rock song that gets right. played a lot and and, you know, that's like the ultimate goal for a songwriter or for a musician is to write a song like that. That I mean, you know, now it's like been, uh, you know, 14, 15 years later and people are still listening to the song. And yet the first time you even hear that song, you're like, well, wait, is that from the 60s or the 70s? I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. It doesn't happen. Uh, uh, which I think is, is is classic, and what you guys do has always had that classic American sound. Uh, you got the guitars with you. Why don't we do uh, sure. Blue on Black right now? Yeah, right on, man.
it don't mean much Joke around Jack, match on a fire Cold on ice, a dead man's touch Whisper on a screen Doesn't change a thing Don't bring you back
That's uh, Blue on Black Horse. Uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd in studio with us. Also, Noah Hunt. Is that a, uh, we were talking about songwriting. Is that a song that came to you easy, or was that one you got to wrestle with a little bit? That one bit? came pretty quick. Uh, we yeah. were down in New Orleans, uh, and me and Mark Selby and Tia Sillers, who I wrote that song with, and I, I, can't, I think we had a gig down there, and, but they came down a couple days early. We rented a house, like, mm-hmm. in, the, in the French Quarter. We just sat in there and just kind of banged out some, a whole bunch of songs that day, and uh, for a couple of days and but what was funny is like it's a real deep song you know like the lyrics are you know kind of heavy um but it all kind of started it was really funny it's like i had the music you know and i was like hey what do you guys think about this and i started playing the music and we're trying to think about like what to write the song about and tia uh i had a shirt on that day that was like it was two different kinds of fabric (laughs) sewn together that was blue and black and she was like blue on black you know it's it's like a total like cheesy way to to have birthed a song, but it ended up being such a wonderful song, you know. The, um, we had just recorded that song, do you remember, in Sausalito, it was about 14, 15 years ago, and uh, we played that song on our acoustics that night to these two girls. Oh, gosh. And they started to make out, like, in the middle of the song, so I guess we should have known. We knew it was going to be Something is working. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that's the way that we can start and figure out whether the, we got a hit or not. That's right. If the girls are kissing. Yes. Now, uh, but do you feel it do you feel like when you had a song especially becoming this breakthrough song the signature song mm-hmm. do you know it or you're just like well, hopeful we didn't know the how far the song was going to go but yeah. we knew that we had something special especially I, I remember mixing the song in the studio in Burbank and my producer was there I was there my dad was there his my uh, producer's wife was there it was a whole I mean we had the whole studio the control room was full of people and we were playing that song back when he did the mix and it was like it was like magic, man. People just got up and started dancing around the room and like high-fiving and hugging. And it was just like this really spectacular moment. And we all knew that we had something very special. We just didn't know that, that it was going to go as far as it did. You know? Yeah. And that's the strangest thing about that song, too, is because it almost feels like a memory. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I can't remember when I first heard it, but I know I had to be much older than I was in my head but I, <laughs> I have a feeling I heard it when I was a kid but it could have possibly happened but so you never know when these things are going to uh, come in and you just welcome them yeah, when they sure, happen absolutely uh, but you play every day right I mean there's yeah. not a day that you're not well you know when I'm in when I'm at home you know having three kids yeah. uh, how old it, are they well my daughter is about to be four mm-hmm. My middle son is about to be two and a half, and our youngest is like five months. Right. So what's funny is, is I used to pick up the guitar around the house, and my daughter, when she was younger, she would like, she was like, be like, Daddy, no, Daddy, no, and she would like pull on the guitar, and I thought she was like getting, you know, jealous that the guitar was taking the attention away from, uh, from her. Yeah. And after a while, and then I just figured, well, I can't do this around the house because I don't want her to feel like I'm neglecting her. And then finally, one day, she kept saying that and I was like what is it and then she took the guitar from me and she wanted the guitar right. you know so the thing is is I can't pick up the guitar because my kids try and take it away from me and they want to <laughs> play on it and it makes it very you know kind of challenging to play every day when I'm at home but you know the best practice that we get is every night on stage out right. on the road I mean even when you're practicing at home there's a different you play with a different level of intensity when you're on the stage that you just really don't do when you're sitting around the house and in front of every audience it's a little different too right I yeah. mean I, I, we were talking about the strangeness of how to write songs, but how weird is it that with different people, it's a different show, mm-hmm. uh, a different place, it's a different show. It could be the same lineup, everything's done the same, yet 
everything feels different mm-hmm. uh, that night. It, it just depends on the yeah on the audience and the energy in the room. Mm-hmm. But you know, every night it, it doesn't really matter though because. A, 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 like a strange transformation takes place in our heads. I, you know, like two seconds before you walk on stage, you, you become another person. Something flips, and uh, all of a sudden you're on this wild ride, and it's incredible. Yeah, the audience does play a big role, man, because, mm-hmm. you know, when you got a crowd that's like, like a lot of times we play a lot of theaters, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, because of the seats, people feel inclined or obligated to sit down. Well, well we love it when people like get up and start dancing and get, although the people that they're standing in front of might not right. be so happy about it. But, you know, when everybody just kind of sits there because they have to, you know, it can kind of like, if once they get up and they really start dancing and getting, getting into it, it, it can definitely, it contributes to the, yeah. to the performance and to the energy of the show. And so the That's audience has a role in the, in the yeah. quality of the show too. And I've felt that from an audience place where everything will just flip that something you know you just hit that spot where it all gets together Mm -hmm. and i think that's the just crazy thing about music particularly the kind of uh, music that you guys play being blues based being Mm -hmm. american based that it all feels like it's coming from some other spot that's been around america for a long long time you know yeah well the way you know the from what i understand uh, you know to play this kind of music authentically you have to you have to come straight from the heart. You yeah. Know? And uh, that's the most natural place you can tap into, man. If you're playing straight from the heart and soul and putting all of yourself into it, then the people are going to feel that, man. Well, you did that uh, DVD mm-hmm. where you went out and uh, talked and played with so many of the blues guys. Mm-hmm. What what got that in the back of your mind? When did you think, uh, I want to go in and, and do more than just play, but connect with these people? Well... It, when we were doing our third record, we were in the studio, and Jerry Harrison has produced many of our records, including the new album. Jerry was in the Talking Heads. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we were just kind of brainstorming, and this is like in 2000, and Jerry had this idea. He thought it would be a cool experiment to write new material. Like, if I went down and found some old-school blues guys and, like, went down to the to their house or whatever and just, like, set up and jam with them and try and, uh, you know, write some material with them to, and then see how that would work out and so we had talked about it just briefly in 2000 and then many years went by and we never talked anymore about it and so then we did the uh, fourth record which was called The Place You're In and that album was really just a straight ahead rock record so it was a little bit of a departure from uh, you know what I think a lot of people came to expect from us so I knew when we did this rock record we have a huge fan base of blues fans that that love what we do so I was like man we got to give the blues fans something to really sink their teeth into so we revisited Jerry's idea and actually decided to take a film crew and go down there and rather than like try and write songs with them we would go and jam with these guys and perform songs with them and make a documentary film and a record doing it which was really cool a lot of great legendary musicians and and some you know lesser known blues players as well but very talented people but you guys are always open to let's just jam we don't need to work talk about it let's just all we you know we all come from the same place mm-hmm. and you're willing to throw it right out there right yeah, oh, well, yeah we every night we try and you know improvise mm-hmm. you know we'll we'll change up the set list at the drop of a hat and uh and you know we'll uh, extend the solos and and songs i try never to play uh, the whole set the same way twice. I, even if we played, if you came saw us two nights in a row and we played the same set list, 
you're going to hear Noah sing notes or phrases, you know, differently on those two nights. Uh, you're going to hear me play solos differently on those two nights. You know, that's how we keep evolving as musicians and learning as musicians. It's like if you're just going through the motions and playing the same thing every night, to me, I, that would get kind of, you know, stagnant after a while. And you just have to let yourself feel it, you know, it's just no. how you're feeling it at, at any portion of the song, you know, just let it go. But I guess there's some kind of subconscious communication that takes place. Because you don't go, hey, on this song, I want you to do this. Oh, yeah. You're just trusting each other sure. to go with it. There's a lot know? of that. Yep. Uh, but is there times where you're looking over and going, what the hell is he doing? <laughs> what is well, this shit? Well, for him, because I start changing up the set list, and, and sometimes I don't... Sometimes all... I announce the song to the audience, and he's like, oh, wait. No. No. Yeah. <laughs> that, that seems to happen a lot. <laughs> it's like when you see the guys playing with Dylan, they're always watching his hands because they don't know what yeah. he's going to do at any time. No one ever wanders away from him. Yeah, we used to just not even have a set list, and mm. you know, I would just kick off song after song, and everybody would just fall right in. But um, you know, now it's like, yeah, we've we got a really great band with us right now, um, probably the best band touring band that we've ever had. I mean, we have on drums we have Chris Layton, who is with Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble, and then uh, on bass we just added Tony Franklin, who is a bass player in the band The Firm with Jimmy Page and mm -hmm. Paul Rogers and and Blue Murder and a whole lot of other bands, and then Noah, myself, and Riley Osborne on keyboards and but we've especially me and Chris you know being the drummer you know he's like the backbone he's like the engine behind it all and uh, we've been playing together for so long now that you know it's like when I go off on a solo and I stray from the norm yeah he knows it's like intuitive it's like he knows right where I'm going it's like that just like you were saying it's like there's no direct communication but we understand where we're going together without even having to say anything and everybody kind of goes right along for the ride you know? it's the, and again that goes back to the mystery of the whole thing I mean that you could sit around and try to describe it and yet it just happens it's just happening on a on a level mm. um you know i think it's also interesting about you guys you come up with an from in an age where you didn't necessarily have to be blues guys yet you were pulled in that direction i mean mm. there was so much music that was open to you you could play anything and yet it went back to the blues yeah there was a lot of stuff going on like you know that was when like metal was yeah. hair, hair metal was big and and even like you know that was when metallica was really getting big and stuff and that kind of metal was was becoming popular and then even like a few years later with nirvana and pearl jam and all those mm -hmm. guys coming out so for rock and or you know the kind of music that most of my friends were into you know i was listening to like muddy waters and john lee hooker and you know bb king and albert king and stevie ray vaughn and stuff you know i was just drawn to the music i'm from louisiana Mm -hmm. grew up around the blues my dad was in radio so I went to all these concerts and you know um, he had an extensive music collection I just always felt very attracted to the blues and let yourself follow it that's, I think that's cool uh, let's do another live one this one is uh, off your live album yeah it's off the record live in Chicago and this is a, speaking of the blues this is a blues song that Muddy Waters made famous but we do a little more of a rock version of it Baby 
That was so Thanks. much fun. Hey, it was great meeting you too. Yeah, you too. Uh, That's Kenny Wayne Shepherd and Noah Hunt. New album, uh, How I Go. Yep. Thanks so much. We'll see you guys next time. Through. All right, bro. Thank you, Ryan. Hello, Portchester University. <laughs> this is.
Yeah, buddies, it's the Ron Fez Show on a Friday. Coming up in just a little bit, we'll be talking about the Black Power mixtape uh, with the Swedish director, Jorgen Olsen, and America's own Danny Glover, or Riggs. Riggs! What was his name in that? Because he was always yelling out Riggs, right? Murdoch? Murtaugh. Murtaugh. All right, here's the weird thing. So he did those things... Uh, years ago with Kenny Wayne Shepherd's father-in-law. Mel Gibson is Kenny Wayne Shepherd's father-in-law. That blows the mind. Yeah. Uh, Lisa, you're on the Run of Fez show. Hello. Is Kenny still there? No. Kenny can't play right now. <laughs> I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I am just a huge fan. This was a really big deal. When I got in my car and I heard you guys have Kenny on there, I can't thank you enough. Yeah, he's amazing. We were just sitting here talking about how fast his fingers are. Uh, Ridiculous. (laughs) It was, and I was like literally sitting at the neck of the guitar, and I'm trying to follow his fingers, and it's it's amazing. Uh, Thanks a lot for calling, Lisa. He's one of those guys that he looks more comfortable with the guitar strapped around him than when he takes it off. When he takes it off, you're like... <clears throat> What's missing? It's like seeing a friend with his head shaved. <laughs> he needs it. <clears throat> it just feels like it's part of him. Um, Dog Neck, you're on the Run Face Show. Hey, Ron. Hey, Seth. How are you doing? Good. Hey, I wanted to mention back in the 90s, I saw Kenny Wayne Shepherd open up for uh, Bob Dylan at some little girls' college in the middle of Missouri. I think it was Columbia. And we're sitting down in the parking lot doing our thing. And we're listening, like, what the hell was that? Go inside. Never heard of him before, but we went inside and listened to him. <clears throat> it was absolutely amazing. It was the kind, he was going off so bad on solos that the lead singer would leave the stage. And then Kenny Wayne would just go off. He was he uh, like 17, 18 years old on that tour, too. And that's yeah, why there's he, something about, like, he still comes in here as a really young-looking guy. Yeah. But even when uh, Blue and Black came, as I said, it almost sounded like an old song the first time you heard it. You know, it just seemed like a uh, kind of a classic rock, humble pie type song. You know, one of those those early things that uh, when uh, Blues kind of went electric there with uh, Clapton. I think he's played with Clapton before, just about everybody. Uh, Fez Watley. The man with the hat, I want to bring you into this today. What's going on in Fez's mind? Well, scientists say they have been able to confirm what they call the return trip effect. I had never heard of this. It's the feeling that when you go somewhere, mm-hmm. the return trip feels shorter than the trip to get there originally. Now, I have never felt that, but apparently, according to this study... Everyone has this feeling. Well, I yeah, I don't even know whether it's a feeling, but you just kind of uh, know your way back after that. To me, if you're going out like to find a party, oh, where are we going? You're fucking looking around the streets. But then on the way home, you just drive home. So that what they said was that they thought that that might have been the reason for it. And now they said that that's not the reason. What is it? The reason is that you have so much anticipation going somewhere that it feels like it's going to be shorter to get there. Then it takes you longer to get there, making the return trip feel shorter. So how does that fall into science, though? It seems like it would be 
uh, you know, closer to just the fucking game that you're playing with yourself. It's just perception, right? Yeah. I don't how you know, the science would be if somehow you got there faster or slower, right? Yeah, that's true. They had done it with uh, bicyclists. They had tested how they felt after a return bicycle trip. And ever, but I always feel like the ride home is much longer. You need to put out your own report then. You're never happy with these reports. I've never heard you say, I found a scientific report and I'm ecstatic about it. You let these reports get to you. Yeah, they always go against my own emotions and my own feelings. Your emotion would be a feeling. Uh, Ryan O'Neill said that... Uh, that uh, his reconciliation with Tatum O'Neill was just for the own reality show. That uh, they're actually in re- in real life further apart than ever. To which he replied, "Thanks for all the help, Oprah." Well, he hadn't talked to her for twenty five years before then. See, now he says that the reconciliation was fake. I think that this. Thanks for all the help, Oprah. I think that's fake, too, because then with a reconciliation, you don't get another season of Ryan and Tatum. If everything's all peachy keen and fine between them, then there wouldn't be any reason to do the show anymore. So you're saying these reality shows play us a little bit. Wait a They're not 100% real. Hmm. I'm going to agree there. And Ryan O'Neill has his hands full with Dancing with the Stars anyway. He sure does. At age 70 or whatever he is. (laughs) One of the rumors uh, replacing Regis is that uh, producers would want to bring Kathy Lee Gifford back and team her with Kelly Ripa. The two Regis co-hosts together. Well, she's doing good over there on that uh, Today Show. Yeah, I well, see. I don't think she's going to give up the drinking show with Hoda. Another report Fez Watley does not agree with. No. That could be our new thing for Yahoo News. Reports Fez Watley doesn't agree with. I wanted to see you do a thing where you just put out your own report moments after the report when you read it. I'll dispute the findings. Good, I love it. The and uh, and I don't think they're going to go with two women on that show. They already have the view. Put that in your report. They want the he said she said aspect of this thing. With the younger he said. Poor Regis, pushed out. He should really just fucking lose his shit in the last day and just fuck this place. (laughs) Kelly Ripa tried to feign this thing of, I'm not even going to think about Regis leaving until that actual day. Oh, that's all she's thought about since the day she got the job. It's quite evident now, Miss Ripa. You don't care much for her, huh? I used to love her. But I just, I just feel that she has helped in pushing Regis out the door. Regis he, doesn't want to leave. He's 80, and he's spray-painted his hair orange now. The high def <laughs> hasn't helped him at all. And he's telling us he's not going away. He's just leaving that show. Go sit next to Dave. He likes to do that. 
Get all loaded. Go on Letterman. Talk a bunch of shit. Uh, here's a quick update where um, over 3,500 players in the Ron Fez Eliminator Pool, 78 of them took the Green Bay Packers in week one, so they have survived week one in the Eliminator Pool. Ballsy move, boys. Ballsy move. No one took the Saints. Zito didn't even try it. Not that dumb. But, I mean, you can't, you can't choose the two really good teams playing each other. It makes no sense when they're a weaker game. Yeah, it makes sense. Even being in this fucking thing doesn't make sense. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> Trying to guess who's going to win every week so I don't get eliminated. Although I, I, Pats. I am already one behind the pack, though, in the pick'em. There may be a few seats left for Unmasked this coming Monday with Kathleen Madigan. That is a very special evening Unmasked, 8 p.m. here at the SiriusXM studios. Go to Unmasked Show on Twitter.com to put in requests for tickets for Kathleen Madigan, evening Unmasked, 8 p.m. this coming Monday at the SiriusXM studios. That's Unmasked Show. Oh, and the NFL has told uh, all 32 teams they have to start displaying fantasy stats at all home games. Where do they display them at? I guess they have to go up on everyone's Jumbotron at some point. But all leagues score differently. Wouldn't that just be displaying stats? I guess, uh, yeah, I guess it's just who scored a touchdown. Counter report. Uh oh. Haven't we always uh, put up who scored a touchdown? Haven't uh, that always been up on the scoreboard? Oh, I've only just seen scores. And the Dallas Cowboys have passed up the New York Yankees as the most valuable uh, American sports franchise. So the Yankees fall to second there. They'll deal. We'll get it back. Don't worry. <laughs> well, the stadium alone it's is ridiculous. worth over a billion dollars. The fucking flat screen. The, mo- <laughs> the amount of flat screens inside the stadium should be worth more. I mean, it's crazy. They have, they have I want, I want no that reason. flat screen to only have uh, fantasy stats. Oh, that'd be perfect. Know how I'm doing in my fantasy league. Look that Kathleen uh, from the Bronx is my only first responder because my guys didn't have down uh, KW Shepherd. Oh, KW Shepherd on the Twitter. We need to do producers meetings so we get get in to do these all the time. But even though she's my biggest nemesis in football, she's always there as a first responder. Uh, Josh, you're on the Run Fed Show. Hey, guys. Um, can we call this segment uh, You Got Mail? Because it sounds like Fez is just reading his email. Looks like uh, Skittles are on sale this week, and uh, they pick up some detergent. Where are the Skittles on sale? I'd love to know that. We don't need Skittles. We have the candy man. Backpack full of happiness back here. He did send a gigantic Reese's peanut butter cup. Don't take me back. A blue on black. That was all I had. Well, it was plenty. We found out quite a bit there today. 
Um, here's uh, Charlie, you're on Fez. Ronnie, if you look at the Eliminator Challenge, uh, we do have a spy report. Uh, there are 72 pages of entries. If you go to page, say, 68, 69, 67, you will see people took the Saints. You already have people out. People like Cooter UK and T. Lemerade are out. Well, I'm going to miss Cooter UK because he and I like to jaw back and forth about this. Hey, coming up a little later on in the show, uh, it's all the guys that were at NEW. Uh, the night of 9-11, uh, all getting back together to talk about it the first time is Fezzeme, uh, The Hawk, Earl Douglas, and Billy Staples. That's Billy crazy. Staples, who uh, was a flag waver from... As soon as it happened, just... I'll say the 12th. I'll give him okay. the 12th. All right. And he was also one of those people... That was mad if other people didn't have their flags out. Oh, he started getting pissed, right? Yeah, he was, you know, he was, there became this thing of people wanting to go around and say who had their flags out and who didn't. I remember everyone rocked the, um, the post, I think, had up the picture of Osama, like Osama, America's Most Wanted, Wanted Dead or Alive, and people were just posting that up everywhere, in every storefront, in car windows. Look at this, first responders taking it upon themselves. Very, very nice. Uh, K.W. Shepard. By the way, he was so much uh, fun to have in here. It's really great. One of the cool things to ever do is when people come in and play live. It's a great experience just to see this thing. You know, for- w- would you not trade every other skill that you have to be able to play the guitar like that? Oh, um, uh, fuck it. Who cares? Give, would I'll, you give up my- your shining personality? Or- I'll cut my legs off. Your fi- well, you'd do that anyway. You're, not, you're barely using them now. <laughs> I noticed even last night you wouldn't get up to get your own drink. It's like, I'm so thirsty, I can't wait till they come around again. Oh, yeah, I like to have the people bring them. Yeah, people bring them. What do you do? You just got bored with it? Uh, I like to have the people bring them. That's all. <laughs> just when people bring them. I like well, I, I can't only have two hands, so I, I double fist, I grab them, bring them back. And I didn't know the regular bar was open, so I was just taking like the stuff they had out. No, that wasn't a complete open bar. There was just certain brands, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was a lot of brands. It was nice. But I noticed that they took away the brands that they didn't have. <laughs> I was like, that takes a lot of extra work there. No. Yeah. It is the Ron and Fez show. Uh, Hicks, I haven't gotten into your kitchen too much. Uh, what's going on with you? Okay. Uh, now, there's the rumor going out that Mel Gibson is actually going to make a movie about Jewish people with Esther House called it's about the heroic story of jewish warrior judah maccabee and he's gonna gibson's gonna collaborate on it and this is why you're saying i'm friends again yeah like See, i don't want to bring that up because that's kenny wayne's people you know what i mean you can't pick your father-in-law <laughs> no matter who you are i can't be disrespectful to the guy i don't know i mean i, I think he's gonna fucking do well with himself he's gonna come back he's you know directed some really big hits and, that and this woman. is his way of saying, hey, I'm friends with everybody. Look, I make movies about everybody. And that woman's finally out. Riggs, what are you doing? You're too old for this shit. <laughs> he is. What was his name on there, though? Murtaugh? Yeah, Murtaugh. Murtaugh. I wish he was Danny Murtaugh. I wish. A blue on black. down. Good shit. I wonder if he mind me air drumming fucking just inches from his face. <laughs> they liked it. Boy, that fucking drummer last night looked like he was on his last days, didn't he? 
I think he had a couple of those. I'm looking over. He's fucking drumming like one of those things they put outside the, uh, like the used car lot that's supposed to be just blowing around. <laughs> I don't even know if that thing has a name. Wacky blow up doll. All right, wacky blow up doll could be a perfect name for it. Um, that was a fucking blast, though. That was nice. Always love those corporate gigs. Where I'll tell you one thing. Booze. Danny Glover better be ready to play. We have still have the guitar here. Well, that was that was his guitar. We still have plenty of guitars. Oh. Just give it to Danny. But did you see Kenny Wayne's fucking guitar? It was look? great. It was yeah. all beat the fuck up. It was beat up. <laughs> Seriously. Like, he found it next to a road. Yeah. It was awesome. No, like, one of the most beat up guitars I ever saw in my life was Willie Nelson. It had a hole in it. It was just looked like it, I'm like it looked like just for when he leans on it, it just kind of given out. I'm like Willie, I know you're doing okay. Come Get on. yourself another guitar. Got a little that chatter, brother. But Come he has on. everybody sign it, and it's like his, and he has a name for it. All right. But even BB King just would name it again, like oh, this is the next Lucille. Yeah. Or Black Spartacus Heart Attack Machine. That's the name of my guitar, Black Spartacus Heart Attack Machine. I wish they would have used that in this Black Power movie. What happened, guys? I'd like to join the Black Panthers if they'd have me. I don't know. White Panthers. Us and the MC5. <laughs> Nobody even wanted them to do it. That was the funny <laughs> thing about the MC5. And the Black Panthers, I think they didn't like any white people except for MC5. They're like, these guys are all right. Yeah, they're cool. They're just such a... They were just such a drain on white people, the MC5. Weird fucking leftist commune guys. It was awesome. Bow, down, Ah, GVAC uh, digging the uh, Kenny Wade Shepherd. I like to fucking get GVAC in here to jam with him. That'd be a dream for him. John, you're on the Run of Fez show. Yeah, being that Earl has a full time job at the Hard Rock, I was just wondering if he ever gave Fezzy Doctor too large. It's not full time yet. And right now, he hasn't been so much of a vibe manager. He's still being a hostess. Come on, Earl. Manage that vibe a little better. Get some playlists started. Burn it down. Everyone found their seats easy enough, though. Well, there was plenty of room, wasn't there, for being kind of a packed house. They did a very nice job of it. That Everyone was very comfortable. That Johnny runs a nice closed gig. A very nice closed gig. Hey, here's something that we got to go to. Um, Big Liz Taylor's jewels are for sale at Christie's auction house. $30 million they're going to go. It's going to happen in December. And I really think that this could be our Ocean's Eleven type of deal where we rob this place. I'm down. Because it's not even her jewelry anymore. We need like an Asian acrobat and Don Cheadle. The only Asian acrobat, I don't know if I can get a hold of Too Cute. It's been a long time. She is Asian. That works. That's half the equation. I guess I could tape Sam's ba eyes back from the ONA show. <laughs> Stand in. Don't take me back. Um, let's go with our buddy Tony in Brooklyn. Tony, you're on Ronnie, I uh, had the pleasure of attending the America Forever Bar Crawl uh, 10 years ago. What a great night that was. I was looking at the T-shirt last night. Still got it. That was uh, a lot of fun. Yeah, Osama wanted, dead or alive. Now he's dead. That's good. We got him. 
Was that what was on that shirt? Yep, that's what was on that shirt. You know what? I don't even remember who made up the shirts. The listeners made them up themselves. It wasn't even a NEW deal. And then the weird thing, that, and this is what happened with uh, RonFez.net. They would just start to go, um, guys, we're playing in a bar crawl if you guys can promote it. <laughs> we're like, wait, aren't we running the show? <laughs> no, it doesn't matter. They were very, very positive force in those days. That's fantastic. Despite what's happening over, over the years, you can't forget those early uh, guys. Uh, like I said, most of those people became our real close friends, including the guy that I think would have shut down Kenny Wade and Shepard today, GVAC. I think he would have closed it right off. He has magic fingers. That's all I have to say about GVAC. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, works for him. It certainly works for him. Um, it is the Ron and Fez Show, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ, 866-RON-ZERO-FEZ. Uh, let's go over here to Noah. Noah, you're on Ron and Fez. Uh, I, I just want to know, how, how does Kenny Wayne Shepard sound so good live, man? Like you're just playing CD. It, uh, well, uh, you know, we've got some really talented engineers here. I don't know who did it yet. Chris Gibbons uh, hooked that up. All right, Chris Gibbons is, seriously, and it's one thing, we go down to the fishbowl, and I see Chris Gibbons uh, lining stuff up with people, uh, but then I don't know how he comes in and does it in this room. It's, remember when uh, we had Daniel and Wyan, and he yeah. had the, the big board, like the rolling one they bring in sometimes? He was yeah. loving it. Because I remember I said we have Daniel Lewa come. He's like, holy shit. Because yeah. he, you know, he's another music engineer. He's fucking wanting to impress the guy. And then he's sitting there mixing <laughs> Daniel Lewa, which is fucking wild. <laughs> um, but the, he didn't even have the uh, board in for Kenny Wayne, right? No, he just had uh, something to plug in their amps. That's it. Yeah, they just wheeled these in, uh, plugged it in, and it was perfect. And then during the commercial, wheeled it back out again, and off they go. Bye. That's the end of it. Bye. Uh, not only do we have the um, weird connection, but a friend of Kenny Wayne Shepard's dad, who used to be a radio guy, uh, was on Fez and I's PD at one time when we were in Miami. And uh, actually, I think he was a consultant for, can't remember what that radio company was at the time. Um, oh, I know it was the nut who started home shopping and... Paxson Broadcasting. Yeah, Bud Paxson. He was like a kind of a billionaire Jesus guy. He had started... Oh, um, yeah, he had started uh, home... Uh, what the hell's the name the of that? The Home Shopping yeah, Network. Yeah, the Home Shopping Network. And then cashed out on that with big money. And just had these huge houses and bought radio stations and then would just fly us around in his <sighs> jet. We would be in his private jet. That's sick. Yeah. And like he'd be like, you know... Um, Funny, not dirty. And I'm like, look who you're fucking talking to. You're going fucking... We were like really insane in those days. Um, we were like an untown at Guns N' Roses. Like we did everything Guns N' Roses were doing, except we just had zero talent. But everybody was just fucking digging it for, you know, because they couldn't believe this shit was on the radio at the time. And then he would fly us around and like try to lecture us a little bit in between going to all his radio stations. And I'd be like, dude, they really like dirty. I got to tell you the truth. They like strippers. What's wrong with that? Come yeah. on, man. I can't tell you. I, we bring strippers in, and we don't have to do anything else <laughs> for the rest of the day. Um, Red Sherman and Fez. I just want to find out if Fezzy liked uh, Kenny Wayne, if it inspired him, if it, it, it you know, moved him at all. 
Um, I found the I found him uh, absolutely amazing. Yeah, but you were saying before you, that you're not moved by music, right? No, I mean, but to be able to play like that is amazing. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't listen to music at all. But musicians, but are, you like to look at them. Yeah, you, musicians, I just look at with you know awe that they're able to do that. Um. So maybe what you should do is like watch like concerts but with the sound down so you're like look at them they're all hitting on stuff and and picking at stuff and jumping around at stuff and uh where are you going where are you just going? to check on something oh, there but i'm talking to you about <laughs> saying the music stuff i like looking at stuff where but i don't really like listening to it so where are you Fez, going Fez. Oh. oh well he's a character that i think he had 12 minutes <laughs> <laughs> it was a little rough I Athens. thought he was in a better mood, though. Yeah, he seemed to... I can't tell in the mornings. He could be quiet and then do fine, or be not quiet and seemingly good and then not well. I don't know. You've got to be able to pick up, though, if you want to start betting on it. Maybe we do. All right. I'm so into that game. Only back. Um... Here's uh, Ryan, you're in Fez. Hey, Ryan. I uh, wanted to see Fezzy. The Pecker, you can chime in, too. But Pepper. Fez, um, oh, either way. Fezzy, you have any uh, football way. picks for the weekend? I'm thinking about throwing a few bucks on the uh, Buccaneers. But yes, I don't really chat. I don't trust the Bucks so much right now because people are going to see them coming. Shane, you're on the Run of Fez show. Yeah, Ronnie B. Uh, hey, here a while back, you guys had on Twitter uh, who we wanted to maybe listen to on the RBI. Yeah. And uh, I suggested Ramblin' Jack Elliott. What do you think about having him in? He's going to be there next week. I would love York. to have Ramblin' Jack Elliott in. I'll put uh, Pecker on it right now. Pepper. It's Ram- a Pecker alert. It's, no, it's not. It could be a Pepper alert. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I think... If you took the handle Pecker, your likability points would shoot through the roof. Well, I think I'm, I'm fine with my likability points with the name Pepper. What are your points right now? I haven't checked the latest numbers. No, 15 and a half, I guess. <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's not so bad out of 100. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, what do you think it would be with Pecker, though? Who's the half person? They kind of like shit. It's like a maybe. Someone gave me a maybe. That's like when you said you would cut your legs off. Yeah. It was, it was an, an anonymous poll, so I don't even know who did that. But I hope I turn him into the likability to bring it up to 16. Uh, Jorgen Olsen is the person who uh, directed this, and it is the Black Power mixtape. Uh, the producer is Danny Glover, legendary actor and activist. He's a very, uh, a very, very big activist. Uh, to set the table for this, let's... Um, Oh, why don't we just play the trailer, and uh, you'll hear what this film is all about. When someone asks me about violence, I just find it incredible, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country. In the 1960s and 70s, Swedish filmmakers arrived in America to explore the black power movement. The U.S. media saw as a violent threat. 
We're making a revolution by educating the people to the fact that they should arm themselves with self-defense. If any racist dog policemen attack us, we will defend ourselves because we have been on surviving. 30 years later in the cellar of a Swedish television station, an amazing collection of unseen interviews was discovered with some of the greatest revolutionary minds in modern history. There wouldn't be an American if it wasn't for black people. We hold America to our bosom. When you get tired enough, it's when you want to sacrifice everything. Get ridiculed and discriminated and be less than a man. It's a question of dignity and decency. My husband didn't make enough money because he was Negro. We were moved and motivated and charged up by people who had already made a commitment to bring about change. Dr. King is a great man and he's very patient. Unfortunately, I am from a younger generation. I'm not as patient nor am I as merciful. Black is beautiful, but black isn't power. Knowledge is power. In this bankrupt country, there is a point where caution ends and cowardice begins. Community was flooded with drugs. Hoover and the FBI, and they, they made sure that the drugs were an influence. Anybody can die nobly for a cause. The sign of maturity is to live day by day for that cause. We have to document our history. If we're going to tell the story, let's tell the story right. The Black Power Mixtape, 1967-1975, featuring Erica Badu, Harry Belafonte, Stokely Carmichael, Eldridge Cleaver, Kathleen Cleaver, Angela Davis, Talib Kweli, Huey P. Newton, Bobby Seale, and Amir Questlove Thompson. He was very happy. It's the Black Power Mixtape. This is... Uh, such an amazing uh, movie in such strange circumstances. Swedish filmmakers uh, talking to the uh, people from the Black Power Party. Most of the stuff, Jurgen, was in a is it was in a basement in Sweden all those years. Yeah, uh, I found it. It was it's, it's an archive, so it's not like it's laying around on the floor. But yeah. it it was you know. It was broadcasted in Sweden once on prime time, but never seen again. So, uh. well, right away to me, one of the first amazing things is that the people of Sweden would be interested in the story in the real time while it was happening, uh, looking at it in even a different way than Americans were. Uh, why was that? Do you do you I know, think there's different reasons. You know. Uh, I think it started when Dr. King received the Nobel Prize in Peace in 1964. It connected Sweden and the Swedish establishment to to the civil rights movement, and then the younger people came around and connected to these guys. And they were all, you know, all these people, Andrea Davis, Stokely Carmichael, and then the Panthers, they came out of universities, and, mm. you know, they came out of education, and they came to Sweden to, to lecture, you know. Uh, so there was a, a connection and, and, and understanding, I think. One of the things that makes the film work is that here's these charismatic people at the height of their youth and their power Angela Davis, uh, UEP Newton uh, Stokey Carmichael, Bobby Seals and Danny Glover you were here and uh, basically you're on the front lines and knew all these uh, people Yeah, one of the other things that in, in adding to the, the previous question was that something else that happened after 1964 and the Nobel Peace Prize you had the revolt in Watts in 1965, revolts in in um, um, Detroit and Newark in 1967. So here we are in 1967. Here's 
uh, all the world attention placed upon the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. now you have these urban revolts. And people were questioning, well, what is really happening? What and, and wanted to know what's really happening. Not what the corporate or the established media was saying, but let's get the voices of these men and women who are now articulating a new vision, a new vision, as I might say, a new vision of democracy. And at the time, since you really didn't have much of an alternative media to the corporate media, NBC, CBS, mm. uh, you know, we're getting 30 shares each mm. on each news broadcast. So we'd only get to see some of this stuff in very small clips. You know, you, uh, yeah, you probably get to see some of it, uh, hear some of it uh, in, in free, free speech radio or right. uh, Pacifica that we'll be reporting all this information. I think there's tons of information from Pacifica and everything else. But, but here we are having this incredible eruption in this idea of uh, of the American dream and the um, America's uh, tolerance and everything, and then you have this explosion. Uh, and you were there for it. You were part of it as as a student yourself. Well, well part part of it was there. And you're 20 years old. You, that's about all you mm -hmm. there. You right. just there for it. You know yeah, what right. I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? You're able to kind of articulate a lot of stuff what happening. But I remember, it's just a funny coincidence. For instance, you can be around in a room, in a room, in a small room, and uh, or in someone's house and everything, standing in the corner, listening to Stokely, or listening to Eldridge. And the first thing you do is after you kind of jot down in your mind, your memory, what they say is go read about it. You right. know, that's the age that you had at that particular mm -hmm. point at 20 years old, you know. And a lot of what happened as a result of that, a lot of how we were influenced as the Black Student Union at San Francisco State University was what came came forth in terms of the strike. Now, the strike initiated in 1968 by black students, but stu the black students quickly learned something else that, that another dynamic was happening. They had the capacity now to form alliances with progressive whites, with Asian students, mm -hmm. with Latino students, with Native American students. Now you have this enormous strike that's much larger, that crystallizes much larger than what we, anything we anticipated. It draws community interest. It also draws the support of the organization and the, the sanctioning of those men and women who we both looked at in awe and met in awe in 1967. Yeah. If you and, understand what I mean. Yeah. Yes, and one of the things that this film kind of shows is how many of these ideas are now part of the mainstream. Some of the things that seem so radical in terms of community organizing or setting up preschool centers for the children, breakfast for kids, is now part of mainstream America in a lot of ways. That's, that's kind of funny when yeah. you think about it. Uh, when you think about these ideas, which were the, the foundation of an I, 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 of what was happening, the Black Panther Party's popularity could not have come essentially on them walking into the California State Assembly in 1966 with 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 with, with guns, mm -hmm. you know, at a particular point in time, which they didn't expect to happen in a way in which it happened. If you talk to Bobby Seale, he didn't expect that to happen the way in which it happened. And uh, now the Black Panther Party is put on the face, not only the map of the country, but the map of the world because of that incident. The things they talked about were, one, community control of police, 
and also having some sort of place where there's a grievance against law enforcement. They talked about free breakfast for children. Then they talked about free clinics, and they talked about the education, reframing the whole idea of education in the black community. That was their platform, in the sense. But when you talk about those things, you either have to kind of find some way uh, the, 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 the powers that be often has to be something like to subvert them right. in some way or to now, in this way, criminalize it. And set out to do that almost immediately. Almost immediately. Yeah. Uh, also, through this, I think that you can see a little bit of the corporations working with the news things. Uh, the piece with TV Guide uh, running a cover story against Swedish TV was, was mind-boggling because in America, no one saw Swedish TV. And here's the number one television uh, magazine uh, acting like Swedish TV is, was bonkers at the time, which just goes to show how much fear, if anybody was looking to make any changes, I think. Fear yeah. runs so much. Well, fear and something else. There, when we talk about this 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 whole idea of democracy, mm-hmm. and, and, I, and I heard... Um, uh, someone, uh, the president, uh, recently, some time ago, referred to the 60s as being too much democracy. Mm. <laughs> There's always a question about how far you're going to take this democracy in some sense. Labor unions have taken it to a certain place. Um, and in fact, you took the democracy some, to a certain place that Roosevelt in 1934 had to act. And he passed all this fabulous safety net legislation, enacted all this stuff, Social Security, um, unemployment insurance, all the things that come out of there that, that, that bring us into uh, the second part of the 20, 20th century. So that kind of democracy pushes the envelope. What did Frederick Douglass said? Power never succeeds except on demand. It never has. It never is. So the demand that goes along with democracy is what? The demand that goes along with democracy in reference to the civil rights movement. The Montgomery boycott. If you deconstruct the Montgomery boycott, what did it do? It did several things. It elevated, helped people elevate their humanity. They're in a sense, they just said, we are human beings. I.e., Memphis, 1968, I am a man. We are human beings. Secondly, they created an alternative system, you know, in which they did not need the bus system. So now they take their own humanity, reconstruct that humanity, creating a new system, a new vision, which is imaginative. Creating a new vision of themselves, a new vision of of a relationship that they have with what they need to do to get by. They build a cooperative relationship between that and and now you elevate human beings you transform them and you transform their social relationships at the same time nobody who looks at the Montgomery bus boycott from that vantage point so if that model now is a model that is translated through the black power movement what do we talk about free breakfast for children what do we talk about free health care educational systems about educating our children the same impetus so the black power movement now becomes a a, and some some of an extension of those other movements that have, have, have developed over time. But isn't it always the pioneers are going to be the ones that end up with the arrows in the back, the guys in the front lines? And I think one of the heartbreaking parts of this, as you follow this story along, is the price that these early leaders paid. Um, being scattered all over, out of their own country, arrested. Um, 
that's the kind of stuff I think to keep people from following, right? I mean, well, that's, that's what, I mean, what happens. Look what happened to King after 1967, yeah. after April 4th, 1967. Look at the arrows he got, man. From yeah. Everything from his, from uh, the New York Times writing an op-ed about about him saying that he was the best friend of Hanoi mm. when he voiced, and he begins that in the most beautiful way. My conscience. I love this country, but my conscience says that I have to say something as a human being. You know, that I'm, I'm questioning this. I'm here telling, telling young kids in Detroit, Michigan, Newark, Molotov cocktails don't work. And they're saying, look, Dr. King, we're using violence here just like our country uses violence, massive violence against Vietnamese children and women. So in the country, the, the logic behind this, once you begin to gun the logic, then you begin to begin to translate the logic into what kind of actions. And you begin to identify what the contradictions are. And this dialectic process that happens, you know, that you're identifying what the contradictions are, and then moving beyond that is the process that I think the, the black power movement is never given credit for. Right. Right. And this film, of course, does set that up to yeah. say, look at this. Look how mainstream so many of these uh, things have come. You know, there's uh, Angela Davis gives a, a speech about violence in there. And I don't want to quote her, but it was basically like, I've always known, you're asking me about violence, but I've been on the other end of violence my whole life. And she lays it out. And it is something that I think... And it happens to us even in international things that we, it's hard to know where the other people are coming from because we live in our own bubble, no well, matter let, who we are. Let me tell you something. This, I, I, I had a difficult time going to Mississippi for a long time mm -hmm. because of what we knew about Mississippi and everything else. And, and what I heard about Mississippi. In fact, my mother's from Georgia. We never went in our journey back to Georgia the five times that I went as a child we ne and drove across the country. We never went through Mississippi or through the Deep South. We hit Little Rock, Arkansas. We got to that particular point, going the most northern route. Then we drove all night, never stopping. I'm talking about in the late 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. never stopping until we got to my grandparents' farm in rural Georgia all night because of the kind of, this is my, from my, my mother's memory. She, that was passed on to me. So I go to Mississippi just a few months ago this year. I go to Mississippi and a young tour guy takes us around to show us the memorial for the th three civil rights workers that were killed. Cheney, uh, Goodman, and, and uh, Swerner. And so, what was interesting, he talked about how apparently Goodman ran and they buried him while he was still alive because you can feel, see the dirt in his, in his hand trying to claw his way out. But what was remarkable, he said, when they dredged the rivers around in the immediate vicinity of where it happened, they found the bodies of 39 other African-American men. Whew. Bodies covered up by all of that covered up by the lie, covered up by by fear, covered up by anger and all of that. So we focus on those three men, sure. but what about the 39 other fathers, that, brothers, husbands, And, and there's no, no police reports on no those police missing police police, nothing. <laughs> that was just something that happened during uh, the night. Imagine that replicated yeah. and replicated over a period of time. The first year in the 20th century that there was not a recording lynching in this country was 1947, the first year. And this is all part of our nation's history, Black Power Mixtape. Uh, 
this stuff that was shot that shows what was going on in the 60s. And the film kind of just almost crackles and pops the whole time that you're watching it because there's so much energy. There's so much stuff that's on the edge. There's so much change going on. And it's hard for us now, I think, for even young people uh, to be able to identify with even the stuff that, that you're talking about, Danny. You know, it. Well, they have some of the iconic figures. I mean, Angela Davis is still one of the most iconic yeah. figures in the world today. Yeah. You know what I mean? Her with that natural, which we <laughs> grace the yeah. cover, the, the, the post of the film with. You know, and the, and the images of Malcolm, the images is of, 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 of King, and yet more and more. We hear the king of 1967, 1968, not the king of 1963. Mm -hmm. now, more and more, that seems to be, as we venture into these, uh, these, these, um, uh, these, have these adventures of war adventures in places, we think about the king when he talked about militarism, materialism, and racism. And then we think about uh, other elements as we see the, the failure or decline of an economic paradigm. The failure of an economic paradigm. Because we look at Detroit, you know, the, the home of modern industry in this country. And we look at inner cities that, that now, and we talk about jobs as if we're talking about job creation in 1963 or in the 50s. We're not talking about jobs in a reality where we've been, the, the country has been deindustrialized and talking about jobs perhaps in a po point in time where the industrial age is over. And so how are we going to contend with that as we look at 10% unemployment as a standard, as a norm? You know, yeah. those are the kind of things that I think young people would have to talk about and reference and remember, as Paul Robeson said, every generation makes its own history. This generation is going to have young people have to make their history. But that history invariably is connected to the past, their relationship and understanding the past, the understanding that the contradictions of the past are just that, the contradictions of the past. They, in some sense, mirror some of the contradictions that we face now, global warming, food security, conflict, all of the things. But there are, there are contradictions that now have to need our imagination, our imagination, our individual and collective imagination to find, and I, and I understand it dialectically to understand what we do in the 21st century. The film also makes a, a case here that um, the ba black power movement kind of uh, lost a lot of its power when dope really came hard in the inner cities in the 1970s and making the case that perhaps the government was behind that. Um, do you guys think that there's some truth to that? That that, that it was, was considered a good idea to move heroin into the inner cities to slow people down, to stop people's focus? I don't know, I don't know this, but I trust the people on the film, you know, telling the stories and... Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think that they they moved the the dope themselves, but of course, they were in control and could have done something to mm -hmm. avoid this. Uh, it's more that relation. You know, Allowed where it did to happen. The, where did the dope come from? It come from come from Indochina and Vietnam. So, and how? What kind of transport did you have between those two different places? Yeah. So, so I think that they could have done something to avoid this. Uh, that's my personal opinion, but it's it's obvious, and also mm. it's obvious that this movement and the the, the uh, whole film is wrapped around the war in Vietnam. 
in many many Ab ways. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the 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 young people's uh, engagement for you know and also so it's follow the war uh, very you know precise. Which which is the amazing thing of how many of these stories were so intertwined during the sixties. Well, they, they they are in in, in so many ways. We we look at the moment as we as, as you it's talked about in terms of the the Vietnam War, a war of, of, of a struggle that the United States had never been in a war of this nature. You know, it may be experienced in, in this, those type of wars as they fought guerrillas in the Philippines during the Spanish-American mm -hmm. War and other places where they went on their their, their adventures, adventurism and everything else. But this became because of access to the media and access to storytelling. This became, right now, the, the war that everybody saw. The, the the technology it developed that it came in your living room every yeah. every day it came in your living room the bombing the faces of the victims you know the faces of the soldier and that was come up and end up in what we see in terms of the law I think the largest segment of of soldiers uh, of homeless people are among ex Vietnam veterans you know and the kind of scars left of that look here my brother at 19 years old. Who's three years older than three years younger than me was in the Tet Offensive in 1968, and he was emotionally scarred by that that whole experience. Plus, he he his at 50 years old he passed away because of the complication, lung complications because of defoliants, Agent Orange, and other things. So those realities, those are the kind of realities that you kind of want to pin together. What happens, you know, and I can say this right here. Mm -hmm. My brother was drug involved in crack cocaine. My brother was involved in drugs as, as a seller and a user of drugs. You know, so there's direct implications with him. What about that that talent had not been devoted to fighting Vietnamese peasants, but that talent that he, that he exhibited in everything and organizing, he became a great my brother became a wonderful substance abuse counselor mm. in San Francisco. I mean, he, he saved other people's lives. He was much loved by the time he passed. But look at the time in his life and how, how, many, how many are fortunate to get to the point that he got to. Uh, it's the complexity of this, these issues we should spend so much time talking about. Uh, and you need to go out and see this film. We're doing great documentaries, and this is one of them. The Black Power Mixtape. Uh, it premieres at the IFC Center here in New York City, and then also you've got another something else going on here in New York. No, uh, Lincoln, Lincoln at, Plaza. At Lincoln Plaza, Lincoln Plaza and yeah. uh, twenty twenty two other cities in America. Uh, so great to have you guys in, and this oh. is a film that everybody needs to see and then spend time talking about it after. Absolutely, going for a long time. Thank Thanks so much, much for coming. Thank you very much. Man. Thank you. Bye now. And remember, next Friday is Hawaiian Shirt Day. So, you know, if you want to, go ahead and uh, wear a Hawaiian shirt and jeans.
It's the Run of Faith show, uh, attempting today to take you through um, every catastrophe in American history. Uh, we're going to go from the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil War into 9-11 in just a little bit uh, as we uh, bring back the crew that was together uh, on uh, at WNEW uh, the night of 9-11. I, I do want to point this out. It is not to act like... Oh, we were involved in 9-11. We weren't. We were just on the air. And that's the only story that we wanted to say. Obviously, 9-11 uh, is about remembrance and whatever people need to get out of it. I know some people would rather hear nothing about it. Some people would like us to have a giant flag that we would unroll from one end of the country to the other. I just kind of feel like whatever people need to uh, help them deal is something to help them deal. Um, but since they are running some stuff on the weekend here, um, I don't know how I got the idea of, of the guys that were together on the radio that night never had the chance to... Well, it's never that we never had the chance. We never really kind of wanted to. <laughs> uh, it was a very, very weird time to be doing uh, radio. Um, and uh, we will... Uh, just talk about the the strangeness of all that in the city at that time. It was uh, weird days. And because of that, because there's an anniversary, you still get those echoes. This is what we're going on right now where, oh, there's a terror alert. And yeah. you run into people and they feel a little They're, weirded out. They're like, do you think anything? And, well, quite frankly, anything could have happened over the last 10 years. Most people in the city think that something will happen again. But also there's people in Pittsburgh that think it's going to happen there. People in St. Louis are going to happen there. You know, Disney World is always worried. It's just part of what it is to be an American now. There's terror checks all over the city today. Just, just, just you know, basically just stopping cars and just like, hey, what, what are you doing, buddy? Going about my business. That's right, yeah. Sir, officer, don't yeah. hassle me. Yeah. Uh, but it is, you know, it's just part of what we do now. It's going to be part of that conversation for the rest of your life. You're not going to be able to get out of it. And again, I brought this up, 47 shootings last week. Uh, last weekend, as a matter of fact. So it's not like, hey, if there was an Al-Qaeda, we'd have this peaceful, wonderful Utopia. thing. I mean, it seems like there's also uh, problems. Uh, you get into this stuff like we were talking about with Danny Glover. And to me, I love to hear it from people's perspectives. Because you can sit around and can talk about race relations and all that. But Danny Glover, as a little kid, his family driving around Mississippi out of straight fear is something that didn't exist for the rest of us. No, And you're not going to really know how that felt. You know what I mean? You don't know how it f would feel to you as a little kid to hear, we're afraid of a state, we're going to drive around it. Now, there's plenty of times 
I wish I could have driven around Jersey. But you can't do that. You got to get through Jersey to get to Philly to New York. You can't escape that fucking parkway, yeah. man. You're not going to be able to pull it off. Turnpike, just eat you up. Um, but I, I do love what was was happening with uh, documentary films uh, these days. It's one after another. Now, we, I got the thing on this. They're not playing IFC at all. That's the, the website was saying was they were playing IFC. So. But I got IFC as an addition, and then he explained it to me it wasn't IFC at all. Mm. We got to start and do these uh, producers meetings, find the wiki in us. Now during that thing, I see some brouhaha over there. Wiki was complaining he wanted Danny Glover for some other show. You booked the guy, right? I I, I mean I, this is the same people I booked through before, and I confirmed it on. I'd say third Wednesday. Yeah, but this was even your booking from the beginning. Yeah, as soon yeah, as I, mean, I you let me see this documentary months ago, and I remember bitching about you about it then. Like, dude, I don't want to go out and see another documentary. <laughs> what another? Jesus. Uh, but it is is a compelling documentary. Mixtape is a great thing because you're not getting the whole story. You're just getting the story from these Swedish directors. You it's know what I mean? It's such a weird connection. Um, but I'm not. The paranoia that started to set in. I mean, I can't imagine thinking that the CIA or the FBI or the NSA has decided that you're on some kind of a list, you know? And fucking tracking your fucking library stuff or whatever. You always hear that. Where if you take out a banned book, they'll fucking, they put you, you're on a list. It's like this person might have communist leanings. Well, you know, you wonder how that even does with the porn list. I mean, everybody feels free to do porn. But you got to wonder if this suddenly becomes some missing girl in a neighborhood. Are they going to check out everybody's porn records within <laughs> the 25, you know, to see who's into more aggressive stuff? Well, this, this guy likes pseudo-rape porn. He's definitely a fucking murderer. Yeah, and it's hard to say, hey, I like pseudo-rape. <laughs> Just pseudo. I like to see him act it out. Not actually do it, of course. Just a fantasy. Don't arrest me. Well, next time they get that fired up and scared about their thing, uh, let them do the person first. Because I could have sat here and talked to them all day long. Mr. Glover was great. I need my guy. I need Rob Cross down here battling for Ronnie B. Rob Cross down here just throwing haymakers one after another. Fucking light his own Molotov cocktails. Zito, was he all up in your shit? He was just in the booth kind of freaking out a lot. Yeah, it's not his place. It's not his... This isn't his show. I worked for him before. I'm going to do that interview because we booked the guy. If you want to piggyback on it, go ahead. I don't have a problem with that. But don't be in... Acting like you can push around our kids. Can't do it. He knows this. I'll tell you, he's very... Uh, but when he's on your side, it's the best. Hey, you got that white I wish gun. I had one. I wish I had a wiki right now to go, Ron needs this immediately. You do. We should do a thing with wiki where we'd go out to a different restaurant on XM every single Friday. <sighs> we would only go to five-star places. Oh, man. And eat all night. Discuss whatever. Just kill it. And Just then, Wakey, use that card. Use that card of yours. <laughs> and then Earl would be with us eating mashed potatoes because of his stomach. Oh, come on, Earl. You can get a little more wild. I like to see Earl start the Black Panther uh, movement reboot 2.0. <sighs> I think they need it. Instead of just constantly trying to figure out what vibe they need over at Hard Rock. <laughs> a fucking power vibe, Earl. Revolutionary. 
Uh, Dan, Dan, you're on Fez. Hey, Ronnie B., how hard was it not to say, I'm too old for this shit, Ray? I got news for you. Not at all. Because he has <laughs> such passion about this. And I wanted to get with, if anything, I wanted to talk Haiti with him. Because he's another guy that's over in Haiti. But uh, my card's handed to me and all. He lit up as soon as, like... As soon as he started talking about this, he just, his face was so animated, yeah. a lot of passion. It was really great to see. Um, he's also the kind of guy to go get busted if he needs to. He doesn't <laughs> care one way or another. Uh, why don't we give out? Uh, why don't we give out a blues album? Why don't we play that secret song? Why don't we play our secret blues song? Okay. And then we will uh, give out a eight and nine. And eight and nine. And I'm trying to work it out for this gentleman to come in. When are we looking at? Sep October? Looks like October it's happening. In October, bringing him back in? Yeah. Because we've never done uh, the the booth with him. And I don't know if he's uh, related to Mark Zito or whether they just have the same last name. What is your uh, What is the whole thing behind your last name? What's it's, the ethnic background? It's Italian. Zito is Italian? Yes. Zidi is Italian. Yeah. Zito, ZD. Give us uh give us the yeah, give us the lead track there, and then we'll give out um albums to the eighth and ninth caller. Eight six six Ron Zero Fez. Eight six six Ron Zero Fez. <laughs>
Dude, we have this on CD. <laughs> oh, Mike Zito, we're sorry. Mike Zito, that was all our fault. Uh, I got nine lines written up right now. Greyhound is the album. It sounds a lot better than what we just played. The album version's much better. MikeZito.com. You can pick it up on Amazon.com. His new album, Greyhound, by the one, the only, Mike Zito. You're the eighth caller. Who are you? My name's Ray. Where you come from, buddy? Orlando. All right. You just picked it up. Mike Zito's brand new album, that's Greyhound. Right. Greyhound. That's right. Go to MikeZito.com for his tour dates and pick up the album on Amazon.com, Greyhound. Now, Zito, how did that sound like that if it was coming out of Dillette? I have no idea. It's indolent like that. It's the official version that's supposed to be playing on the XM Blues channels. Yeah. And I just pulled it in, and then I sent Pips to get the CD as a backup, and uh, the CD that came back down for some reason had no disc in the case. It was just a nice <laughs> Greyhound case. We're going to have producers' meetings. Uh, hi, you're Line 9. Who's this? Hey, this is John Burns from Auburn, Alabama. Oh, uh, you picked it up, too, my friend Greyhound. That's our buddy Hell Mike yeah. Zito's. That's right, Mike Zito. Go to MikeZito.com for his tour dates and Greyhound's new album. You pick it up on Amazon.com. Greyhound by Mike Zito. Coming up in a little bit, we are going to bring back uh, some of the uh, WNEW buddies. This is long before I had Chris Stanley in my life. Long before that. I was just a baby Chris Stanley. I was I was a little Chris Stanley. I was just a listener then. You did not even know. Um, Couldn't even drink legally. But you did it anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. Did everything I can get my hands on. Awful. <laughs> I don't know. It was kind of fun. You know, from Astoria, could you see uh, the towers? Yeah. Uh, yeah, you see right, plain as day. Yeah, you're right there. And uh, when it happened, 9-11, I was on the last train out of the city, on the last fucking sub, last end train out. You were in school then? Yeah, I was just got out of Hunter College on the Upper East Side. Got on the train. Come out of the fucking, and in the Queens, it comes out from under the tunnel into an elevated track, and you can see the fucking, both of them on fire. As what were you coming home that early in the day for? I had class like 7.50 in the fucking morning or some shit at Hunter. Yeah. It was, I don't even know what class it was, I can't even remember, but it was a retardedly early class, and then I had like, oh, a class later in the day, but I went, would go home in between. And then I'm on the fucking platform, watching the first one drop. And just not knowing what was going, everyone's freaking out. There were people all along the thing with video cameras, though, which I thought was weird. Like this is this is nuts. How do these people even think to? It was really nuts. Fuck. Yeah, it was really fucking crazy because it was just it was like a movie. Like as, as I'm, the train's coming out, you could just, they're fucking right, right here. Look out the window, and the towers are right there. It's on fire. Zito, could you see it from Rhode Island or um, too far away? You couldn't see it from Rhode Island. No, no, I could not. Were you, were you guys all saying, I bet Rhode Island is next? Because you know what's really weird about that, too? I had friends in L.A. at the time, and they're like, I think we're next. And I go, no one gives a shit about you. Just stop at <laughs> They're like, look, if they attacked uh, New York and D.C., they got to become in L.A. next. I go, do you understand your ego right now? Do you yeah. realize that no one wants to knock the L off the Hollywood sign? We're the third most important. We're definitely next. Don't you? It, it, that's how it goes. Everybody knows that. And then Chicago said no one ever picks us for anything. <laughs> we were worried a little bit about Boston, but like I just remember, like I was, I was like an eighth, an eighth grade, what like would the you Prudential do? Center. Down the Green Monster. What? I just remember being like an eighth grade, and they terrified us all because we were young and know what was going on. Well, it's because the adults were terrified at the time. Yeah, no one knew what the fuck was going on. Let me tell you, when. Um, 
when you have uh, kids, and it's like the first time in your life when they go, is everything going to be okay, that you couldn't exactly say, yeah, because I know how this is going to work out. Oh, boy. You know, all you could basically say was, well, whatever happens, you know, we're going to do the best to deal with it. That's right. We're trying to make it through. We're going to do it somehow. <laughs> Something will happen. So, um, yeah, we will uh, come back and uh, with the the guys who were on WNEW um, that night. Uh, 9-11 is what we're talking about. And it's only because of the fact that we did talk radio that that night and the following week and then the months that went on. Um, I don't think we did a lot of talking. We did a lot of listening. We were letting people talk to each other, going back and forth. I brought this up, uh, but we did become incredibly good friends with Hard Rock Johnny, who came with the up idea of, hey, we can do stuff to help, which was really helpful to us. Because we're like, yeah, there is something we can do. We have all these listeners. They yeah. can get water. They can get shovels. They can get gloves. They can uh, do stuff. Um, amazing, amazing, strange times. Uh, but, you know, anybody can feel good in the light. You know what I mean? It, when you're in the light... It's a one thing to say life is good. But during dark times, and you see people bringing little pieces of light themselves, it really does uh, make you think about uh, humanity. Um, and there was incredibly, incredible uh, feats of humanity uh, in those days. And oddly enough, the people that I made friends with... Uh, after 9-11, I consider lifelong friends. And I don't do that often from, you know, other periods of my life. Um, the people at ronfez.net became great, great friends to us. Uh, and that lasted for long. Even after we left the town, we stayed in touch with people. We came back up here and did shows and we weren't even on the air at the time. So it's amazing how you can, um, you can find light. Uh, wherever you're looking for it. Uh, when we get back, uh, we're going to have some of the guys on that were on with us that night. It's Billy Staples, uh, Earl Douglas, and The Hawk, um, who were two of our producers, and Earl worked in um, promotions and hanging up pictures at that time. Um, Earl was basically everything that Danny Glover rails against. That's Earl. That's the next generation. Um, so we're going to break here. And we'll get back uh, with the folks from WNEW. It's a run fish show. Thing uh, f here for the 10-year anniversary of 9/11. Uh, something that we've never really talked about that much with the people that were involved. But uh, since we were all on the air that night. Uh, we thought we'd get back together with all the people that were on the air with us. Uh, it was Fez and I, uh, Earl, Hawk, and Billy Staples. Now, Roy Rory Hamptons and Al Dukes were also part of that show, but they could not make it into the city. Um, when the planes hit, uh, the sports guys were on the air. Uh, then Don and Mike uh, came on after them. O&A were able to broadcast from Long Island. And as the sun went down that night, uh, 
we did the Rana Faye show in a way that we had never really done it before, which, of course, in the middle of a tragedy. Um, our GM at that time, Ken Stevens, Jeremy Coleman, and his assistant, Craig Swab, all made the crazy, uh, crazy decision to instead of just running news like any sensible programmer would have done, but to take these guys that did this crazy shock jock station and put everybody on the air. It was a really unique experience um, for all of us and changed the way I think that from, I'll just speak for myself, it changed for the way I thought about talk radio and about uh, the New York City audience uh, at that time. Uh, because there was so many calls that we took from so many different kinds of people doing so many things. Um, everybody knows about the victims of 9-11 and everybody knows about the heroes of 9-11. Um, the first responders, uh, the policemen, uh, the firemen, EMTs, uh, even the union guys, which doesn't get talked about enough, but... When that tragedy happened, so many guys from the tri-state area grabbed their tools and did everything they could do to work through that rubble without anybody asking them for it. Um, but, you know, those are the big stories from that day. But there was also a ton of small stories and stories that we got to hear that night and over the next uh, couple of months. Um, stories about people in New Jersey grabbing small boats and making their way over. Uh, stories about people putting strangers in the car with them um, and driving them home. Uh, people like uh, our good friend Hard Rock Johnny who collected food and stuff and took it down to people working. These were all small stories. And the night of 9-11, uh, the fact of Fez and I and Earl and Hawk uh, and Billy Staples all being together, that is also a small story. Um, but it's our story, and one that we've never talked about. And uh, we pulled all these guys back together after 10 years, and uh, we'll just sit around and talk about what it was like to do radio that night, um, what worked, what didn't work, and what changed things for us. Um, here we go. The uh, crew from WNEW that night on the Monte Show.
It is the Ron and Fez show. Uh, here we are, ten years after 9-11, and uh, through a very slight uh, discussion, we decided to uh, do something, um, and that was to bring back the guys who were at NEW uh, the night of 9-11 back together. Now, this in no way... Uh, are we trying to say um, that we have any more of um, ownership over that than, of course, the millions of people's whose memories go into 9-11? But we thought from a specific point of view, uh, we could just tell you what it was like doing uh, talk radio on that night, September 11th, uh, 2001. Um and again, of course, the real memories that day go out to the first responders, their families, the people who were in the towers. Um, those are the real stories of 9-11. But in this case, we thought we'd just give you uh, five uh, oddly unique viewpoints of the people who were all together that night. And we hadn't uh, really ever talked about it since. So, uh, of course, Fez Watley is here with us, uh, and one of the people with us, Earl Douglas, was not even our producer that night. Uh, Hawk was our producer, and Billy Staples. Now, we had a much bigger crew, but not everybody uh, could make it in. As a matter of fact... Uh, Fez, we didn't get you till the very end, right? Right, right. Uh, just about right before we went on the air. It was that long before you could get over from Roosevelt Island? I, I think so, because I remember it was already getting dark out when I got off the subway, and I think I maybe had like a half hour, 20 minutes. I hadn't been there all day at WNEW. Right. Um, so, and I don't remember what time we went on the air, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock that night. I can't really remember. Do you remember, Earl? I think it was 7. 7 o'clock. Um... Uh, which, um, again, was uh, it was it was a very, of course, strange night to uh, be doing radio. But I think for us, particularly strange, because I don't think that we ever. I know I had never done traditional talk radio at any point in my life. I mean, I had been in radio for over a decade, but shock jocking it. Uh, dick jokes, uh, mean stuff to the interns. So uh, that day to hear, oh, you guys are going live, was a very, very odd thing for me. And I remember uh, the, the fact of, uh, of ending up at the station. Uh, and I don't know whether you guys are aware of this, but I had to go chase. I had to go after kids, my kids, first thing in the morning. Went and picked up my son first. He was close. Uh, then went to my daughter's, uh, way on the other side of town. But because some of those kids couldn't get back, I actually took kids back to NEW uh, from her class with us as we were trying to get them home and find their um, parents. So that was like a, a remainder part. That was the biggest part of my day. But the weird thing was about us going on the air that night was just how sure uh, our boss, Jeremy Coleman, was that that was going to happen. Because to me, in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, we'll probably run news, right? 
You know, yeah. that seems like the smart things. <laughs> Why put the idiots on the air that night? But Jeremy had been um, from the even the first time I saw him of, hey, this is what we do. And, you know, you'll do the show. And I was like, well, you know, you probably want to run 10-10 wins. No, I think it's important that all of our guys go on today. Well, Fez isn't going to make it over. Uh, and I don't know whether I'm going to get any producers in. Uh, well, we'll look, and if I need to have a producer with... He was just from the beginning uh, okay about us all going on the air. And I never said anything to him. But in, inside, I was thinking, well, this is a terrible idea. <laughs> it could not be a worse idea. It was almost to be able to go on the air that night. It seemed like uh, working a completely different job of, of what you would plan for. You know, like for me, it was like if you would just start saying, oh, you're going to be painting portraits tonight. It made that much <laughs> sense to us. Uh, so we'll go around the room and found out how, because um, Earl, you came in from Queens. Yeah. Were you, now you weren't part of our show that day. You came in at that point and just produced for us, right? Yeah, I was I was in promotions, and I I remember just as any other morning, I was getting ready to come in to work at ten o'clock, and then everything just went completely haywire. And I the only thought that came to my head was for some reason I don't know why I was like I have to get to the station, and I have to get to the station. But as the day progressed, it became harder and harder because they just it was as close to martial law as we right, had they in did New that York City fairly quickly. Yeah, they by probably like ten ten thirty. No trains, no cars coming in, unless you were emergency, unless it was emergency vehicles, nothing was coming in. No trains, no anything. So I was stuck at home basically the entire day trying to figure out a way to get here. And I didn't get in until about five. Mm-hmm. And by the time I got in, I think Jeremy was one of the first people I saw. And he went, um, because you, just whatever the guys need, do it. And he goes, um, he goes, how long do you stay? I was like, I'll stay as long as you want. And he goes, well, Ron and Fez, they might need a producer. Because you remember, they, he got the word that no producers were yeah. coming in. And I'm like, I'm ready. So there I was. I was there basically the rest of the day. Um, and, of course, the Hawk, you came over from Queens living in Astoria. Now, you walked across the 59th Street Bridge, the Queenborough Bridge, the Ed Koch Bridge, the bridge <laughs> with three separate names now. Um but the rest of the city was walking over that bridge to get out, right? Yeah, it almost felt like uh, like a salmon swimming upstream. It was just like this, <laughs> these waves of people were just coming at me. And I, I started thinking to myself, like, maybe I should be going with them in the other <laughs> direction. Why am I going to you know, a radio station? What could I help there? Pardon me, excuse me. Pardon me. <laughs> it was just really weird. And, uh, yeah, it was like a salmon going against the, the water. And now, what time did you come over? What time did you walk across that bridge? I think you were in the office already, Ron, and I worked on, I helped out with o a show a little, just like screening a couple phone calls, so uh-huh. probably like five-ish or so. That yeah. was, um, but now in the back of your mind, did you think, hey, we will have work today, or? No, I thought, like you said, I thought we were going to be running news all day, <laughs> like I was going to be editing, uh, like, you know, sound bites or something like that. I had yeah, no I idea. still think Jeremy made a fantastically bad choice. <laughs> 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 Just seemed like, and I swear to you, the funny thing about him was, is like he didn't wrestle with it for a second, you know? Um, and I, of course, did not say, 
oh no, or I think it's a bad idea, or I'd rather be off home. But inside, that whole entire time, I kept thinking, well, we do comedy. Why would we be on the air? It doesn't make it. I mean, obviously, they pulled every other show on TV that night. You know what I mean? Uh, and all the music shows were pulled all over town. Um, only news was running on any kind of station. So uh, bizarre to bring that up. And all of our shows stayed on that whole day. I think the sports guys were on in the morning. Don and Mike. ONA were able to do their show, but they couldn't get into town. So they did it from Long Island. They found them uh, a studio. Yeah. Uh, Billy Staples, you live far out on Long Island, right? How far of a, of a train trip was it for you from Long Island into New York? The train is usually about an hour. It's anywhere from 15 minutes to an hour to take the uh, just a normal ride. Yeah. But I couldn't even tell you on that day how long it was. I, it's a blur. It really right. is. And just hearing you talk about the morning with what you went through, it just brought something up that I totally forgot about before I took the train. I remember sitting at home watching it on the news, and all of a sudden, like Hawk and uh, Earl says, I got to get to the station. And yeah. I had looked, no clue how to do it, because at the time, the railroad wasn't even running. Then the railroad started running to Penn Station, and only after that were medical and emergency workers allowed into the city from Penn, from uh, Jamaica, pardon mm -hmm. me, from Jamaica. So that's when I went into the bathroom. So I hid into you, the bathroom You hid in the bathroom on the train Yeah. Uh, as it was coming in. Now, when you were doing, when you left Long Island, did you think to yourself, I'm going to have to hide to get into the city? Yeah. I knew, um, you I knew, knew exactly. from the word go. Yeah, I knew it when I was standing at the platform, you know, thinking to myself, Okay, how am I going to do this? I was originally thinking I could, you know, wipe, whip out my little, uh, you know, WNEW office, the building pass, as say, you know, like I'm press. <laughs> right. <laughs> and figured that that might carry a little right. weight or something, but um, I'm like... I forgot we had the CBS badges, because we used to use that for all kinds of stuff. Hey, CBS is here. <laughs> I tried to get in no, no matter what was happening in the city. Even when I went downtown, days later, I wore it around my neck like it's a credential. <laughs> right. I guess if somebody doesn't know any difference, it could get you by things. But uh, So the weird thing is, I don't think that we knew that you were coming in either. Because I remember when I saw you, I cracked up. I'm like, well, how did you get here? I know, because we didn't even speak. I think right. you had spoken to Rory, and, or somebody had, and said, well, there's no way I can make it in there. And it's like, and then you know, I guess just assumed that I wasn't coming in, but right. you, should, you, you know, I'm different. Well, the other people who uh, worked with us that time, Al Dukes couldn't make it in from Jersey, and Rory couldn't make it in from Long Island. Now, uh, here's the weird thing about us: we never left those guys alone about that. We busted, <laughs> always busted their ass. Like, are you coming in tomorrow? Is this another? Is this another nine eleven for you? <laughs> I don't understand. But we never gave them a break. And then we went. Hawk made it. Billy made it. Earl could get in. And for whatever reason, we acted like somehow those guys didn't care about their jobs because they didn't make it in. God, men can be just awful. <laughs> no, we mean the real team. <laughs> and the fact that I was one of the one that made it in was yeah. even worse. <laughs> um, here's also 
uh, just to show you how the world was different. When all this happened, we didn't worry about Fez in those days. Uh, you weren't the anxious guy in those days. No, no. And I remember going to, I had only two stops on the subway to get to WNEW. But I remember thinking, somebody at some point is going to stop me. Whether it's on the subway platform, and then the train came in, and I got out there, and then got out on the sidewalk on 57th Street, completely empty. Not a car, not a person out there except for cops. Mm -hmm. That early in the day? Yeah. Uh, Because when I first got to the station, it was uh, pretty chaotic. Um, People were going in each direction, people trying to get out of the city. Uh, I spent a huge part of that day, too, like I said, trying to do something with these kids to make sure that they hooked up with their parents. Um, but at the same time, I don't know whether you guys can do that. remember this, you couldn't exactly reach other people from the city. All the phone lines were out. So I was out of contact uh, with my family, my parents, you know, in-laws, all those type of people were trying to reach each other, which why it never once dawned on me, Billy, to call you or to call the Hawk. I forgot about that. Because the phones just, you know, they were yeah. useless. Yeah, my, my brother called me. My, my brother never calls me, ever. He called me. He went, it took me an hour to reach you. He's like, I was trying your cell phone. I kept getting a busy signal. And then he tried to, he finally got me on the landline, but he said it took, I mean, the, the you know, ten years ago, the cellular world and the you know the whole phone system was a whole. I got news. To, I got news for you. If something happened again, this phone, just like in the hurricane, uh, we couldn't reach. Oh, when the earthquake hit the other day, uh, we couldn't reach each other. Actually, that's how I found out my phone was ringing. That's what woke me up. Linda was calling me from her job mm-hmm. to wake me up and let me know what was going on because I was clueless. I was sound asleep. Early in that more early in that the morning, like eight thirty, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was that back then. I mean, that time of day, there was still no problem. Like when Fez, when you came in, things were known then. Oh at yeah, this in the point. evening, yeah, towards have, the afternoon. That must have been so ballsy. I mean, seriously, to get on the subway, knowing what we knew at that point. And there were threats everywhere and, you know, all kinds of different stories. Well, I remember, you know, when I did get out of the subway by NEW, there was cops yelling at the few people that were out there, get off the street now. And you had no idea why they were yelling that. Hmm. So what exactly was being yelled? There was there was police officers at every subway mm-hmm. station, and as I was walking down the sidewalk to go to NEW, at one point, you couldn't even hear where it was coming from, cops just started yelling, everyone off the streets now. Well, there mm. were rumors flying left Yeah, the rumors right went crazy out uh-huh. there, yeah. Uh, one of the things that I remember, uh, and it was one of the strangest things, well, to, to get to my kid's school... Uh, I actually came past this building that we're in now because I remember seeing the Fox things and then coming through Times Square where it would be the big scroll, the news scroll, and there was something along the lines of America attacked or something like that, New York City attacked, which made you feel 100% like you were in a... Jerry Bruckheimer movie. I mean, who would expect that? And why that was happening, a fighter jet 
that went over the tops of the buildings here. And a woman was yelling on the street, are they ours? Is that ours? Is that ours? And people were trying to calm her down because you would think to yourself, well, no, jets aren't going to bob in the city. But once this thing started, we expect it to keep going on. No one expected, all right, we're going to explode two buildings, the Pentagon, and another plane, and then that will be the end of it. It felt like it was the beginning of something that was going to go on for days, if not months. So at that point, like you just said, Billy, the rumors that were going out and the fact that suddenly you see military in the street, it was a a, a crazy The biggest experience. thing that everyone was going around, that the State Department was hit. That's mm. all, that's the rumor. There was like four I don't remember planes. that. I don't remember that yeah. one either. Well, that was probably on the television when mm-hmm. I was still at home. But they were saying the State Department, the Pentagon, you know, the, both towers. Uh, you, uh, being a lifelong New Yorker, uh, Earl, anything like this that you've experienced before or since? Uh, no. This, like I said earlier, this was as close to martial law as mm. we had in the city where... I mean, even when the first plane hit, everyone kind of had a very, okay, this is an unusual event that, I mean, people, because remember, the initial report was that it was a small plane and that, you know, it struck the roof. The only worry, of course, everyone had was like, how do we put it out? You know, it was the tallest building and how do you put it out? But other than that, even when that first, that first plane hit, there was a sense of calm. When the second plane hit, all bets were off. It was just... People didn't know what to do with themselves. I mean, I remember walking, I remember trying, like a maniac, I'm still like doing my regular routine, and I just see this wave of people not saying anything, but you could see the panic on their face. That was a primary day, and you had had all the banner planes for people running for mayor flying over the city that past few days before it happened. So it seemed... Natural is a dumb word, but natural that it was just one of those small planes that accidentally went into the tower. Yeah, and and you no, know, when they built the uh, the towers, that was always their biggest fear was that a small like, everyone right. people who complained that like, it was too big. Like, what if a small plane hit it? Well, how could you? So when it happened, that that little mechanism kind of kicked in. It was like, well, they they feared this for as long as they were the building's been up. But once the second plane hit and where it hit, we were like. When the second plane hit, we're like, "Oh no!" Yeah. That was the uh, remember, was only, that was the aha moment. It was yeah. minutes it was apart. Like, it, they were like, "Oh shit! Right. This is real. This isn't an accident. This is an attack. Yeah. This is this is it. We're being attacked on our soil." Yeah, it was a very uh, strange, strange thing. Um, it is the Ron and Fez show. We put together uh, the team. Uh, that all went on the air uh, that night in NEW. And I said, and I mean that just from the Ron and Fez show, because, as I said, the sports guys have been on the air before that happened. Don and Mike uh, were on the air uh, doing their shift, which was middays. Then ONA went on the air, and then we came in uh, as the uh, nighttime shift. Um, And we stayed late. Yeah, we actually did, uh, We well, we actually, for a long, long time, we used to go later because you start to feel a little weird about 
you know, shutting it off since so, so many people out there uh, needed to talk. Um, getting back to the fact of doing radio that night, which is one of the you know few unique things that we could bring to this story, uh, I felt fairly confident that we would not be doing um, a show that night. Uh, as I came into the station that day, and in the midst of trying to find uh, out how to get some kids uh, to their parents and uh, trying to reach family of mine to let them know um, I was okay and people were checking in from all over. Uh, by the time I got there, Don and Mike were on the air. And it was kind of... Um, Don and Mike, uh, Don Geronimo, is, is a, a real broadcaster. So those guys went almost in immediately into sounding like they could have easily been on CNN. Um, they started doing news talk radio. Um, they had Buzz Burbank with them, uh, taking calls, moving things around, reading stuff. And again, I had never done that kind of radio, so that felt like, well, it makes perfect sense to me that we've got Donna Mike on the air, uh, but after that, knowing that O&A weren't going to be able to make it into the city, I thought that we would go into straight news. Uh, Jeremy had remarked, oh, we're working on this thing, for finding another studio for O&A in Long Island. In the back of my mind, I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen. So I kept going about my day, trying to take care of my own personal stuff, using the office as, you know, a place to keep these kids. Uh, O&A did go on the air that day. And I remember hearing them, and the weirdest thing to me was that they sounded like O&A to me. Because inside, the last thing I felt like was myself. And the fact that they went on the air that day and sounded so uh, familiar and sounded so comfortable was almost the strangest thing in the world to me. And I found out later... Um, that, you know, that's what Jeremy's point was about having us all work anyway. You know, was to go on the air and be yourself, and that would bring whatever it brought to the listeners. The listeners would find comfort in it and would be uh, a lot strange for their lives um, than it would be to suddenly go into news talk radio. And, of course, the other part of it was, I think, from Jeremy's point of view, and I'm talking for him now, but... That's your job, man. You know, you're supposed to be on the air when you have a radio job. There's no excuses. There's no, uh, I've got a problem here, or I've got a problem here. It is your uh, job at that point. So, again, to go back to this, Jeremy had no doubt that we'd be all uh, in here doing the show. But inside, I had uh, some amount of doubt. Uh, Fez, by the time you showed up, because... Uh, did you think we'd be able to pull off a show that night? Oh no, I didn't think I didn't think Jeremy was going to have us on the air. I didn't think so. I'm like, I'll if I can even get in there, I'm sure that they'll say no. Ten Ten Wins will handle this, which I think is what we were throwing it to at the top of the hour anyway. Well, well the reason why we were throwing it to that is we suspended uh, commercials. So um, not only that, but. To come out of the, you know, where we work now in satellite radio, 
You know, I can do an hour and a half, two hours. I've done the whole show without breaking once. But in those days, what were we playing, Earl? Was it 16 minutes, 18 minutes? I think it was up to 18. 18 minutes of commercials every single hour. Uh, to go from that to, hey, no commercials whatsoever, was an odd shock yeah, that's to the a- way you were used to doing radio. Yeah, because I even, I don't even think the the news breaks were only like f- maybe five minutes tops. I'm not sure about that either. I mean, uh, they think that they said, "Hey, anytime you want to just throw out the news, throw out the news," um, and we went on like that for a while, right? I mean, we didn't run. I don't know whether you, any of you guys remember Hawk whenever we started to run spots again, but I think it, it was took, two weeks. Was it? Yes, yeah, definitely a few weeks for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it was easily, I think, two weeks, and then if not more, two weeks was the minimum because um, we didn't expect it to be that long. Well, and plus all that, cra- all the the craziness that kind of happened, that that crazy paranoia that kind of kicked mm-hmm. in. Because remember, at one point, Penn Station got evacuated, and like something was getting evacuated every single night. It seemed right, and it was like you know, Chrysler Building, Empire State Building. Uh, Penn Station gets Grand Central. There's always, you know, p- suspicious package found here and in there. Powder found here. Powder found there. So we didn't know when, like you said before, like we didn't know when it was going to end. We just thought it was like the first wave of whatever this was. So that's probably the reason why we went commercial free for so long. Well, and also the advertising business had no idea what to do. What are you selling now? Um, it's hard to sell horny goat weed when we've just been attacked. <laughs> and yeah, I never needed it anymore. I never needed it as much as I needed it that night. Uh, but at, um, you know, when people bring us up to us about being on the air at nine eleven, I don't think it felt any difference from us on nine eleven or nine twelve or nine thirteen, nine fifteen. October 5th, October 10th, it still had that feeling. So really, a lot of people will uh, say to me, uh, hey, you know, we listened to you that night, it really helped. But they might even mean two months later. People felt that feeling for a long, long time in uh, New York, New Jersey, Long Island, Connecticut. I mean, it was a long time before that feeling went away. There was a tone sent set in those shows the first few days, 9-11, 9-12. There was a tone set in the, I'll say the persona of the show, how it almost became much more intimate with the audience. Uh, I would agree 100%. With that, and I would actually think on a like a professional thing is the f- that nine eleven was the first night that I ever gave any thought to working in talk radio. Um, before that, I just felt like I came in, I did jokes, I laughed, you know, we did stunts and stuff like that. But I never felt like I did talk radio. Uh, I never, f- if someone said, "Are you a talk radio host?" I would have said no. Uh, in those days, I probably felt like a comic on the radio more than anything else. Uh, you know, I thought it was a place to come in and do gags and leave. If anything, you know, yell at the callers or make fun of them. Um, but the after nine eleven is the first time that I thought, you know, there is a community that's attached uh, through talk radio, and there is a service uh, about that, which again. I think Jeremy got way more 
you know, he understood that before the rest of us did. Maybe because he had given talk radio some thought, and I never had, you know. <laughs> like, what is your job in talk radio, or what does the audience expect uh, from you? But I'd, I'd certainly never given it a lot of thought before then. I never gave it a lot of thought that what Jeremy actually pulled together that day to get a studio for O&A, to organize Ron and Fez, to get you guys together on the air. Mm-hmm. To organize Don and Mike still, the feed from Washington. I don't know the technicalities. No, they, they were here in New York. Oh, were they? Don and Mike were here in New York that day. Um, because they used to do shows a couple of days a week from New York. Yeah, time. they would do it back and forth. You're exactly right. And that just so happened they were in New York. Now, here's what you have to remember from their point of view. Is Washington, D.C. was attacked at the same time. So here those guys were in New York and not being able to reach their people back at home um, and the two cities that they were connected to got uh, attacked. So I had no idea of whether their families were with them or, or apart and who they had there. You know, obviously they had homes in both places. So, um, yeah, all that stuff had to be pulled off that day. There was a lot of aspects of this day that I never realized. Mm. You with the children, you know, Don and Mike being here, um, Jeremy, I mean... All I remember is, obviously, the attacks yeah. and what we did. I didn't realize all this ancillary stuff was going on because we're just so focused on the one thing. You know, a lot of people did a lot of things that day to get these shows on the air. Um, and again, as we went back to, I mean, this was the smallest part of the 9-11 story there could possibly be. Um, a city had to be pulled together, and in the middle of that, you know, I think talk radio played uh, fair witness. Um, the other part of the, the, the two other parts of that is about going on the air that night is I had nothing to say to people. There was nothing that I wanted to crack a mic and say, look, I've been given this some thought and this is what I, I want to talk to you about. And even though I didn't say that to Jeremy, that's what inside I was thinking of. I'm sure there's somebody who can pull people uh, together or say the right things, but I don't think it's us. Um, about the time that we uh, went on the air, um, for me, looking over and seeing the phone bank just... Poof, and you were running the phones in those days, Billy. Yeah. And the phones immediately lit up. We had something like nine, ten lines... Uh, that stayed lit for months. Uh, and in the term of talk radio, for me, it almost became like I was doing listen radio. Every single phone caller had something to say, and everything was covered in between uh, fear, anger, loss, shock, shock hope, uh, desperation. It didn't really rem matter what it was. Each single call was a whole new way to look about it. And that's what our show became. And I also remember that night, as the sun was going down, you could feel just the weirdness of what had happened. That It was one thing to be in the city with the lights on, um, 
you know, with the sun out during the day. But as it started to get dark, um, the people who their minds were going to run, that was the time that it started to happen. With this bright, eerie glow coming from lower Manhattan, which yeah. you could see from everywhere, it seemed like. From ground zero, with all the lights going from on and down the fact there. that it was still burning, too. Yeah. And it burned for a week, right? But those lights, it was so lit that. up. Yeah. No, I just remember, like, I remember leaving that after that first night, walking down the street. How It was funny because it was very quiet. The street, I mean, no one was on the streets. But every once in a while, you pass a bar, and every bar was packed. Like, it, it was just this odd thing kind of happening where, like, I remember walking down 7th Avenue, and I kept hearing this weird, I have to walk four blocks to, the, to catch the, uh, the subway. And I kept, every 40 seconds, I kept hearing this weird noise. And then it dawned on me, it was the street light. That was, I never heard the sound of the street lights changing. It's like, yeah. And that's how quiet it was. And I, and that's when it really, like, it was almost like a, it was like a bad dream. And I like, guess, you know, New York, and particularly uh, Manhattan, never is not, it's never, it's always noisy. It's always active. So something's always going on. And to walk down the street and hear absolutely nothing but, you could literally hear the shoes hitting the sidewalk. Yeah, you could have bowled on 57th Street uh, that first night, which is probably one of the more busier streets yeah, it's, in it's America. an intersection. It was yeah. basically, if, you, if you're coming from the east side, that's where you come off the bridge. You know, you go straight down 57, you go east to west. I mean, it's a major cross that nothing zero there was i remember I, the one image i'll never forget in my life is in the middle of this intersection there was a cop with a flare you know trying to direct traffic that is not there and he's crying he's you know hand in his yeah. hand in his face he's crying and, and he's clearly there to direct whatever traffic needs to go but there was no traffic and it was just this really you know, uh, what was that movie? Uh, was it Vanilla Sky with the yeah. empty? Yeah. I, I, I had no bravery to try to walk down Times Square because they said that was empty too. So I get that quietness at once the sun came down was so creepy. And Hawk, you had lived in, you've lived in this town your whole life. You never lived anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, Queens my whole life. So had you ever um, seen this city? No, it was like like Earl was saying. It was so silent. It was just eerie. And it was just, actually, I had to work. I stayed at the station that night because no one else could come in. And that next morning, I was leaving, walking down 7 to go to Times Square. I don't think I saw a single person except for, like, a police officer. So it was like, you couldn't, yeah, it was just surreal. It was almost like like a disease had hit, and you're, like, the last survivor. Yeah, they've done a million movies like that before where... You know, you're that person, but to actually be in it. So you stayed in the station to help produce uh, around the clock, and you did the same, Billy? You yeah. were staying in the station yeah, I, as well? Yeah, I, I stayed and did this, the phones for the sports guys next morning. And those guys made it back into the city, or they had stayed over? Or? Yeah, I believe they did stay somewhere, because uh, mm -hmm. they were there bright and early, because uh, I was... Uh, Woken up when they got there because I was sleeping in their office. I think the weirdest thing about doing uh, working at that radio station, WNEW, which was the most pirate radio station <laughs> in the history of the world. I mean, literally, 
It was like Pirate's Head shows. <laughs> Every single show was crazy in their own way. I mean, so much that no one thought that our show was particularly weird. I mean, every everywhere that we had ever worked in our life, we were the freak shows. And when we got the NEW, man, that's a freakish. I used to tell people, we're the tame show. Yeah, it felt like... You, you guys were like the voice this. of reason. Yeah. I said, we followed the bad guys. <laughs> but at, at that thing that everybody then had to pull and go into another direction. And I remember... Uh, that people were doing stuff like, well, you know, Letterman went on a, a week after, and then John Stewart and Leno were the next night, and that those guys had went on the air and cried when they were doing their opening show. But the talk shows at WNEW had put in well over 100 hours before those guys uh, were able to go back on TV. We went live... Uh, all the shows immediately and stayed live and again none of those shows were serious shows and yet at that time you had this thing of you know because they ever you know what they're worried about with Saturday Night Live and Letterman is will the nation ever laugh again can people tell jokes no one will you know it's hard to go back and nor should you go back and remember how crushed people were where they thought to themselves, I'm never going to laugh again. Um, nobody had any idea when we, we would do normal radio again, if at all. I was afraid when we first started to supposedly get back to normal radio, when we started running spots again, I was sitting there afraid for the first joke. I remember feeling that like what is going to happen it was the eeriest thing and like that first night ron a 9-11 when i had no idea what we were doing and i remember sitting at the phone booth and i'm looking up at you like this little boy who's like help me tell me what's right. going on and it's like nipper that dog with the you know into the me i'm going ron help me what am i doing here tell me and you would say billy just let the people call just let them talk. Let them express what they're feeling. You know, don't, you know, no screening per se. You know, don't tell them what to say. Don't lead them in a direction. You know, like there was hatred. There was anger. There was crying. People were asking for loved ones by yeah, name. Yeah, that was the toughest stuff at all, that people would say, look, my brother works there. or, And, you know, I know that there's d different places that some of those things are online and people go oh did you ever go back and listen to the 9-11 and i go i could never in a million years go back and listen to any of those shows i will never go back and listen to any of those shows you know it's never going to happen but the stuff that you said that you know hey uh i'm looking for this person i'm looking for that person we he was working in this tower he might have gotten out and to know now what i didn't know then is no man, nobody who was above a certain floor was ever going to be found again. Any of those firemen who went into that building, any of those policemen who went into that building, any of those emergency workers who went into that building were never going to be found again. All the doctors and medical people that they called down there mm. were just walking around yeah. with nothing to do. 
it was the eeriest thing. And this was still two days later when I finally went down there. And those calls, uh, those particular calls, the amount of them just kept getting bigger and bigger. And when people would say somebody's name, that made it real. And try to describe them. Yeah, what they were wearing, where they worked, what floor they were on. Uh, has anybody seen them? They were wearing this today, that today. He had a, you know, my, a ring, anything. And when they would say a name... It's my husband. It's my kid. You know, all of a sudden it became, okay, this is a real person we're talking about now. You know, not just a bunch of people. We're talking mm. about this husband of this person on the telephone. Now, you were screening telephone calls. I mean, did we go on like that for ever? It seemed like, I mean, it wasn't one night, it wasn't one week. It just seemed like it was months and months and months that people felt uh, de desperate, anxious, whatever that happened to be. There was no way we could ever get to everyone who wanted to do it. No. Everyone who had an emotion, a feeling to express. And it, that's why we kept staying later and later and later. It's, it was so hard to shut the mic off. Well, that's very weird that you said that, because I remember we... Well, what day did 9-11 fall on? Was that, it Tuesday. That was a Tuesday. And I remember the first day we were off, uh, it was a Saturday. And uh, this was like the first disconnect that Fez and I ever had is that night. I'm like, maybe we should go back in and do the show, because it felt weird not to be in. And Fez was like, dude, really? Because I'm exhausted. And that was like that point that st started to show that people were going in different directions of like who needs to turn it off and who feels like if I attempt to turn it off, then anxiety will hit me. You know, like the only thing that I felt like I knew how to do then was just be on the radio. Uh, anything else felt like it was too weird to me. Um, but just to go to show you how it never was like a one-night thing, I remember I went to see my parents at Thanksgiving. And when I pulled out of the Lincoln Tunnel and started heading down uh, New Jersey Turnpike, I felt guilty. It felt really weird to leave the city. And that was months later. It, and I can't explain why I felt guilty, but it just felt like you're leaving the city behind it just felt like the worst idea i just felt lost when i remember again that every night i would leave i would just feel like really like am i like i should you know, like you felt like you could be doing more you know what i mean it was like it, it didn't feel like you said you felt a sense of guilt it was like did i do enough did i you know and it's like why am i going and of course, why am there i wasn't sleeping? anything that you could do yeah, it, it, i mean you you could not uh be doing you couldn't pick anything with your life uh, that helps less more than radio. I mean, you could. It's between this and robbing banks, I think, just to show that you're not living up to. But it was one particular time where people were like, no, we, we need to talk. And you could tell that when people called up and if they were angry and they got to be angry, uh, if they were um, sad, if they were scared that by the end of that phone call, they got out what they needed to do. You also have to remember that this was a pre-Twitter world. Uh, no yeah. Facebook, no MySpace. Um, so 
the social networking wasn't done at all. In some ways, 10 years ago feels like 30 years ago. Well, you know? I, I had been up that morning. The towers had already been hit, but it wasn't online yet. It wasn't on AOL. And I was just looking through news. And like I, I remember like the biggest story that was going on was Anne Heche talked crazy on an ABC interview. <laughs> and I thought, that's the biggest thing in the news today. And it still hadn't hit AOL, even after the uh, second tower had been hit. So you're saying, like, in those days, like, even updating took... Yeah. You know, where now you would know immediately everywhere would explode with it. Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of it that way. But, well, yeah. That's when it started to kill me was the 24-hour news networks. You couldn't stop watching. Yeah, you didn't want to turn it off. You couldn't. You'd go from one to the other to the other. And they all had the same story. Uh, you know, the same, you know, crawlers across the same, you know, bottom of the screen, but you just had to keep, you couldn't turn off. Right. What if something happens? And I remember, Billy, you became one of those patriotic guys where you brought your flag from home. Yep. And we let you put it up in the window. We're like, yeah, put it up in the window. That so, was my dad's flag. That was from my dad's funeral. So that's how much that meant to bring that in. Um, and there were some flag people. There was some, oh, well, we, you, Billy was, no, the, here's how, no, this is the weirdness, though. You were the let's attack them, let's nuke them guy, which, oddly, people won't get this, so was Fez. Absolutely. From the beginning. Yep. Um, I don't remember what side of it well, I was on, but I remember yelling at Al Dukes once for putting on uh, Peace, Love, and Understanding, uh, coming back from a break, and I felt like that was... A slate against the troops. I'm like, what the fuck are you doing, Al? <laughs> you know the Marines are going over there. Uh, we were just crazy. I mean, you any kind of saneness left. But then you went to a candlelight vigil. Union Square. Down in Union Square and became a peace nut overnight. <laughs> you wanted nothing but peace. Everyone was holding a candle. And it was such... Okay, now I'm going to sound hippie-ish a little bit, but... I was standing in the dog park, that the dog run, mm -hmm. and I didn't even know it when I was walking in, but such a vibe of like that old hippie feeling of like, you know, the old Coke commercials. I like to teach the world to sing where everyone's like hugging. And I remember climbing on top of a caterpillar bulldozer to see from above, you know, to get a glimpse of all these people and at that point i looked up and saw the fighter jet like you had mentioned and i'm like okay do i want that or do i want this warmth and love and community that i'm feeling and yeah it switched me it it, it really so did. you basically billy you saw yourself as you're there, you're the Marine with your gun, and then a hippie put a flower in it, and you you had suddenly changed. Until Bush gave the speech, and then I went back again. Mm. Um, Earl, did much change for you after that? Um, uh, I had to change my whole... I had more questions than answers. You know, it was just sort of like... Uh, I remember reading... There was a Time Magazine piece, and, and basically... It's summed up. It's like this wasn't an attack on a policy. This was an attack on us. And I thought, I said, okay, what is? 
Like, where is this anger coming from where this incredible act of cowardice comes from? Like, what are we doing wrong? Because I didn't, I never bought into that whole idea. Like, well, they attacked us because of our freedoms. It just seemed that very... That's why they attacked us, because we have freedom. And, and, no, they were jealous of our freedoms. And I, but it seemed very, but the way it was said, it seemed very empty to me. Mm. You know what I mean? And I'm like, okay, like, as much as there's a, a, a shred of truth in that, there's something else with that. Well, don't become a Bill Maher. I'm not becoming a Bill Maher. I'm not, I'm oh, just, yeah, you got very angry with Bill Maher then, too, Billy. Oh, uh, calling them, like, what did he say? They were not cowards. They were brave to crash the ability. Well, he said it wasn't building. a cowardly act to do it. That, you know, it might be an insane act, but not cowardly. Uh, and he ends up losing his gig over that and, you know, luckily going to HBO, where no. he still does a great show this day. I tell you, if we, if he would have been there at that restaurant that night when we walked in, he uh, was there. He was. When I walked back, he no was way. gone. <laughs> Nothing happened. You wouldn't have done anything, nor should you have. No, but, but I had to kind of re. You know, you ask questions. You ask, mm. and I just thought, and I, and to this day, I'm still kind of figuring. I was like, are we, are we better now than we were ten years ago? Are we, are we safer now than we are ten years ago? Are we? You know, you know, are we better because of the Patriot Act? Are we better because, you know, all these things that happened in the aftermath that has, like, has it made us a better nation? And I don't know. I don't know if it's good or bad. I'm still asking those questions. Let me go over to the Hulk. Hulk, did things change for you that day? Yeah, it just shifted your perspective on, like, you know, everything just more globally and what's happening in the world and how, like, people can actually hate you or hate your country. And it was just... It was just spooky. I mean, I always wondered what it was like to like be in Pearl Harbor or whatever. And totally, 9-11 felt like that for me. It's just once, you know, once they, every, all, everything stopped, the city was empty, it was quiet. And it was like, you actually thought it was like the start of another world war or something. Yeah, it was almost ridiculous that it wasn't the start. That you, yeah. when you finally got into your head, that wait, they weren't, they're, they're not going to keep this going. What what did they hope to accomplish by that one stupid thing that they did? Um, I remember the newspaper, I think the Daily News the next day, they said, I remember the headline is like, it's war, and 10,000 feared dead. And you're like, and that number just kind of like, wow. Like, ten, like how can we, you know, how can we bury 10,000 I forgot people? about that, how big they thought the death toll was. So there was no way to know. Yeah. There was no possible way to know because the people who came out of the buildings, just kept going. No one went over for a roll call. So it took, it was a long time uh, with names on that, that, that figured out, hey, have we just not heard back from them, or was that person lost? There wasn't any way to, to figure it out. Because people were always wondering still, are they shell-shocked? Are they hurt in a hospital somewhere? You know, they never gave up hope for the longest time. That somebody was maybe sick and in a hospital with a, you know, not knowing who they are. Yeah, you thought they were either injured or whatever. Um, yeah, there's just thousands and thousands of uh, of just heartbreaking um, stories just, out there. It just doesn't make you feel safe anymore. Mm. I mean, every even to this day, ten years later, there is still this underlying cause still to not hate Muslims. It's still, you know, like, it, 
reports, TV shows now are going, you know what, you can't hate a whole community of people just because of one incident. It's still going on 10 years later. People, you know, that anger from that night, hating a whole... Uh, well, cool. but you know, do you remember feeling when Osama bin Laden was killed? I didn't. I didn't particularly feel any better about it. You know, I know some college kids went out and were dancing in the streets, but I didn't go dancing in the streets. Yeah, I found myself asking those same questions I asked ten years ago. Now I'm mm -hmm. all over again. It's like, does this make us better? Does it make us safer? Does it make us? You know, does it does it end anything? Does it give? I mean, for families, it it's, it was a sense of closure, and I completely understand that. But there was still kind of this open endedness to it all. It's like I was like, I wasn't happy, I wasn't sad either. You know, and it was crazy. Here's what surprises me. Here we are, ten years later, and I look around at you four guys, and we're all together, and still not one of you is married. And I'm like, what oh, kind of a weird thing goes on here? I think it's just the radio industry attracts single people. I don't Confirm know. Confirm If there's something that, you know, you guys would have put out there, I'm telling you, I accept all four of you. Where no did matter that what come from? Hey. I'm just saying. It seems odd to me. No one's even dated. No, it's true. It's true. Yeah, that that hurts. Wow. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I want to get it across. Yeah, like Rory, Rory's married with a kid. I think Al's been dating some people on and That's off. all because they didn't come in that night. <laughs> they don't. They didn't have to stick to them. Uh, Isn't that funny that we didn't invite them back? They did every <laughs> other night with us, but they missed the nine eleven. Rory is one floor above us, <laughs> and he hasn't been invited down for this show. Just probably walking past the window, looking at um nine eleven was uh another uh event for you uh Billy, because you had been sober for how long before nine eleven at that moment nine months and nine eleven was back off the wagon, yeah. Was, you know, when you want to be among family, when something bad happens, you know, you By want family. To, do you mean Budweisers, <laughs> drunks, okay, alcoholics? Right. That was family. And it, as silly as it may sound, as a j joke and whatever, that's where I felt comfortable. I felt safe. I was around my people, my family. You know, Ron, you ran and got your children. Yeah. You did the. Th you did. You know, the family thing. Right. I was alone at home and after coming into the city walking i was like feeling i guess just alone and i just walked into a bar i heard people they were drinking and i'm like okay i'm part of my family i feel at home i feel normal now mm. and an excuse okay sure <laughs> but it's weird it made me feel safer calmer right. better you know uh, not so alone the, and i didn't know anybody either right. i didn't know a soul <laughs> but you know why we're talking about this whole thing the fact that you came to work drunk that night i still 
Yet denied it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yet denied it. Whatever, like, what smells like a brewery? <laughs> I know it's the Billy. He's going to meetings. Uh, I'm sure quite a pe- few people fell off that time. Although, you know, there were meetings all over the city that night, if you wanted to. Uh, I went trying to bar hop after the show. I just didn't want to stay at the station, you know, alone again. And there was no cabs. Absolutely no cabs. And one of the cab drivers told me that none of the foreign cab drivers, no matter what, wanted to work. They were afraid. Yeah, I think that those were rumors, too. I don't know whether any of that stuff ever turned out to be uh, true or false. Um, I will say this, too, back about that period. I remember that... I was at a show the final spring, and I think it had to do with the Tribeca Film Festival, uh, which would have been probably May or something like that. Late April, early May. Yeah, and there was a show, and it was Wycliffe, and it was a free show outside, and it was Wycliffe Jean, it was the Counting Crows, it was Sheryl Crow, it was David Bowie, all one day. And people were out there, like Billy Crystal was there, and Whoopi Goldberg, and Robert De Niro, and Robin Williams, and Jimmy Fallon. Everybody was just putting on a show. And at one point, I looked around, and we were not that far. We would have been right underneath the towers. And it had to be a full six months after. And people were dancing around and having a great time. And then I looked around... And a bunch of people, while they were dancing, were crying. Because it had been the first time that they had danced in so long. And they either were guilty they were danced, or they were happy that they were dancing. Just feeling something. But the whole thing of getting back together and talking about 9-11 and doing radio as if it was uh, just one night, I think, is is a crazy thought. Because it went on and on and on for uh a long time. I think it changed the show. We started doing more serious. Well, issues. we started doing talk radio after that. Yeah. After that thing that we got in touch. Not only that, but it was for the first time in my life where I stopped, you know, ignoring that the audience were were people like you talked about. Uh, we had a very big show in Florida, and we would show up. And there would be like, you know, thousands and thousands of people when we would do events. We would come out, you know, wave, do something, wave and leave without ever knowing who the people were. But after 9-11, we started to set up the bar crawls, inviting people into the studio to hang out with us, to do stuff. Um, at that point, you, you start to go, I want to know who these people are. You know, um, then we started to go to bar nine and just not so much perform for people like we used to do, but just hang out, um, be friends. And I think that only recently um, started to subside after all these years, that closeness, you know, of just finally moving back. But those people that we became friends with uh, after 9-11... Before that, I would have called them listeners. After that, I would have called them friends. Easily. Um, and there's a ton of people. GVAC comes to mind. Uh, Chris the Cobb. Mikey D. Yeah, just tons and tons of people. 
uh, all the girls uh, that we met after that. So yeah, we we did it. Yeah, it did change um, the way we did uh, radio. We talked about this too. Is the following night? It was nine twelve. Was the first time that we ever talked to Hard Rock Johnny about putting stuff together and running thing together. And Johnny had gotten it into his mind that he was going to help out the guys. And it gave us the opportunity to start talking about those things on the air. Anything that was making us feel more and more part of it was um, terrific. Just terrific to be a part of. Yeah, I remember the Hard Rock put together all those events. Basically, like, we... like. To help the uh, rescue and recovery, they're like, we need gloves. So, oh, they were a staging area. Yeah, they were a staging yeah. area. Like, if, you know, if you want to donate gloves, if you want to donate. Yeah, but here's what would happen, Earl. They would go, all right, they need gloves. Then our next phone call would be this. Could you please tell people to stop bringing gloves? <laughs> mm-hmm. That's how quickly the people wanted to get involved. That quickly. Where moments after you said, they need water. Uh, hey, could you tell them to stop bringing water? We've got a thousand cases. I mean, it was crazy how people reacted to stuff. Yeah, for how a city so big became, basically became this little community. It is, it, though. It, it, it is a community. You're right. Um, and you really got to know it uh, after that. That's one of the things that people called about. I forgot. They were asking for things, where to bring things, where to donate. Um, websites, uh, Red Cross information, a lot of things like that. I remember going down there and handing out masks. I still have my little mask, you know, that they, you know, like the operating room mask. Oh, I forgot that everybody was wearing those because of some of the stuff that was burning off. The aroma, the smell down there didn't go away for months. Death. No. Just death. Um, I think uh, we should get uh, ready to wrap up. You brought this thing from uh, Jeremy, though, um, that was something that he sent out to the staff, I guess, was the emails. Um, And this was less than a week uh, later, but I guess he was just starting to get a part of it. Um, Here's the part that I will read that he sent out to everybody. the end result is that WNEW did what radio stations are supposed to do, stood by its audience. Um, that is something that I didn't realize at the time is why he wanted us to come in and work. Um, that is what I didn't realize uh, at the time that I was going to get most out of that entire experience you know that it stopped being faceless and start being about us you know connecting with each other no you know there i don't think at that point there was a big difference of whether you were the host or a caller or you were somebody like johnny who was coming together saying here's how we can help and you were the people helping Uh, everybody was together in that community thing and in the middle of all that tragedy it felt like a uh, a good place to be. It felt like a blessed place to be because you felt involved. Uh, I know also at that point um, 
it was the first time. I think I can speak for you, Billy. I don't know about the other times, but you stopped hating cops. Um, before that, no one ever had a good word to say about cops. After that, we treated cops uh, like human beings again. Yep. You know? Uh, so many people who were not, uh, did not call the show that had been listeners are told me later that that night, the night of 9-11, that they turned on the show, even if it was just to hear our voices, to know that we were okay, and then turned it back off again. So many people have told me that exact story. And no matter what they were doing, I think that was just their way of uh, checking on people who um, lived in the city. It didn't even have to be our, us in particular. But they just wanted to know that somebody they knew who listened to the that lived in the city. Another thing about staying on um, so long after that it, and I brought up the stuff about cops and uh, Fez and I had the same experience as, as Earl of walking down the street and seeing a couple cops holding each other. I never forget those guys crying knowing that that was probably friends of theirs that they lost or hadn't heard back from. Uh, and then it went on where so many guys uh, worked for so long on that pile. Um, and so many of them are sick not backed up, not taken care of. But those guys used to listen to us for a long, long time. And um, one night before uh, I left, uh, a cop uh, stopped by, pulled me aside, thanked me for the kind of stuff that we did, and handed me his badge. And I'm not going to give out his name because he told me not to, uh, but this... Is kind of to all of us. Um, oh man! Yeah, that I've always uh, kept that with me ever since, and it's been about almost uh, ten years now. You never but told us. Why would I? Then you'd ask to hold the badge, and I'm not going to go through that. No, I, I mean, really feel like that's it's my very badge. special. No, that's. I feel like it's my badge, Billy. And yeah. if you want to keep it for a couple of years, that's up to you. <laughs> um, no, that's really something. But that is one of those things. That, again, we didn't do anything but be on the radio. But I think sometimes just going and doing your job is the whole thing. So I honestly want to thank you guys uh, for being there that night and sharing that uh, strange, strange experience. Not just then, uh, but for what took place months and months after that. Uh, I also want to thank the audience for being open to connect with us at that point. You know, I, I had uh, uh, this love affair for New York long before I uh, m moved here. I was just crazy about the city. But to be th there through those days, uh, I'll love New York forever now. I will love New York uh, forever. And also, I want to uh, thank Jeremy, who really, I wouldn't have done the show if it was up to me. And I'm glad that all of us had that experience together. Um, Earl came out with a song that we used to end the show with, uh, because it was a hit at the time, and it just seemed to fit perfectly. Uh, and that's a U2 song. So we'll, we'll end this like we always do with this. Uh, you too, Sunk. Hawk, thanks for coming in, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. 
Billy Staples. Ron, you're the rock, thanks. No, you're the rock, and I'm just the role, buddy. Earl Douglas, great to see you again. Always great to see you. I'm getting choked up. I'm and, really am. <laughs> well, that's because, I hate to say this, but you're a little bit of a sissy. And that's the <laughs> only reason you're feeling that way. Fez Watley, um, and we will end it the way we did uh, so long ago and for so many nights uh, with you two. And I do think it makes sense. Walk on. <laughs>